BFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. I, uh, I wrote this morning about Paul Harvey. Do you know who Paul Harvey is? Paul Harvey, you know, the rest of the story. Back in the day, and I mean way back in the day, my grandmother used to listen to Paul Harvey. It was on ABC Radio. I wrote about this today a little bit because uh, Paul Harvey did uh, news and commentary mornings, middays, weekdays. He's all over the radio. But he became, I think, really known for his the rest of the story segments from like the you know the 1950s all the way to 2008 Paul Harvey was busy uh, you know basically telling people what was really going on or what the backstory was on what was going on and I really do this morning I found myself thinking about Paul Harvey a little bit I wrote about Paul Harvey just to give you an example, if you if you subscribe to me at johnconzano.com, you know where I'm going with this. But, uh, you know, if, if Paul Harvey did anything for me as a kid, he entertained me. And he gave me the backstory on stuff that I did not know existed. And I told the story today about, um, you know, a guy that that wrote the story that became the movie it's a Wonderful Life. We've all seen the Jimmy Stewart, Mary, Mary, that Christmas movie every Christmas Eve on NBC or for years and years and years. It was on all kinds of TV stations. And, in fact, it became a staple on television in the 1970s and the 1980s. During Christmas time, It's a Wonderful Life was everywhere. And I never knew why. Like, I just assumed it's a hell of a movie. Jimmy Stewart's in it, and it's a great movie, and, you know, we're all entertained by it. But Paul Harvey gave us the rest of the story. And the rest of the story went something like this. Um, in 1974, because the movie came out, It's a Wonderful Life came out in, in December of 1946. And in 1974, um, it became the subject of a controversy because a clerical error led to the movie It's a Wonderful Life not being uh, copyrighted properly. Uh, the, the copyright I- expired. There was a filing error or the, you know, the, the production company that owned the rights to It's a Wonderful Life, whoever it was at that time, uh, failed to get the paperwork in, and they lost the copyright on the movie. And it mattered because then it meant that the studio couldn't get paid every time It's a Wonderful Life aired. They had no rights, uh, and it became public domain. And as a result, in 1974 and beyond, really from 1974 until, you know, up until about 15 years ago, uh, the movie It's a Wonderful Life was on all the time. And I never once figured out why, or maybe I didn't even bother to ask because it didn't matter. But it turns out that the reason why the movie It's a Wonderful Life was so widely distributed, and again, when it came out in 1946, it wasn't that big of a hit. It didn't come out. It wasn't like, you know, best picture. It wasn't, didn't get all this acclaim. It was just another movie. But because the copyright expired and because it became part of public domain, the movie It's a Wonderful Life could be aired by anybody, anytime, on any station, 
and they didn't have to pay any kind of rights holder uh, to air the movie. And so as a result, it became a staple from 1974 until really into the mid-90s. It became a staple for two decades of, hey, it's December, we can put that Jimmy Stewart It's a Wonderful Life movie on. And Jimmy Stewart, uh, if people don't know the story of the, mo- of the movie, it's, he's, he plays George Bailey. He's having a hard time. And he uh, w- wonders what life would be like had he never existed. And the angel Clarence appears and gives him the opportunity to kind of learn what life would have been like with no George Bailey. And turns out it wasn't a very good life. And so in the end, what happens is, um, you know, you, you get this movie, It's a Wonderful Life, that gets disseminated everywhere for reasons that the viewers, you know, probably didn't understand in 1975, 1978, 1980. I'm a kid. I'm watching this movie. I'm like, this is the greatest thing ever. All of these stations are airing this movie. It's everywhere. Well, it turns out that the stations were airing it because they didn't have to pay for it. And it became a Christmas classic, not in the 1950s, not in the 1960s, but in the 1970s and 80s is really where It's a Wonderful Life got its run as a Christmas movie. And I wrote about this today, and I love this story because it's the backstory of the backstory. Now, the the Supreme Court revisited this very case, um, and, and as it turns out, in the in the late 90s, the Supreme Court checked, you know, decided that former copyright owners could have derivative rights to the original story, which meant that the original story rights holders really did own the rights for It's a Movie, It's a Wonderful Life. So you saw in about you know the mid-90s, late-90s, it suddenly disappeared from TV again. And it was like, hey, where, went, where was It's a Wonderful Life? Well, it disappeared because the rights holders could now charge people who wanted to air it. So most of the TV networks stopped airing It's a Wonderful Life. NBC still does a Christmas Eve broadcast. You can still buy it on Amazon Prime. But as Paul Harvey used to say, now you know the rest of the story. I want to give you the rest of the story today on the Pac-12 conference. I want to give you the rest of the story today on the Trailblazers. I want to give you the rest of the story today on the Oregon Ducks football season and their basketball season. I want to give you the rest of the story on Oregon State. So buckle up for that. We'll get a visit from Dave Bartu, the college football matrix. But today is going to be about the rest of the story. And I'm going to start with ESPN and Kirk Herbstreit. Now, for those of you who are watching the ESPN broadcast on Monday night of the football national championship game, Georgia boat race TCU. We all know 65-7. to 7. It got pretty boring late in the game, and I left it on. I watched it to the wire, uh, in part because it's my job, and I wanted to see what was going to happen, and in part because, you know, I watch it so you don't have to, kind of like bad movies that I review for you. But I watched this, and near the end of the broadcast, Kirk Herbstreet uh, on the broadcast lets loose that he has talked to Deion Sanders and that Colorado – which was supposed to open the season at TCU in week one, instead believed that it would, it would open the season in a week zero game against Arizona State. It makes a lot of sense to me. When I heard Herb Street say that, I said, oh, that's, that's a pretty good idea. The Pac-12 conference, that's a solid move. Generates some buzz, rewards the Pac-12 TV partners, and doesn't allow other conferences to share in the glow of uh, you know Sanders making his debut as a Pac-12 coach. Also, you get Kenny Dillingham in the wash. Because if it's Arizona State and it's Colorado in week zero, you got two first-time Pac-12 coaches mixing it up. Now, that said, 
Uh, several people out there have reported today that that Week Zero game may have already been nixed by the Football Oversight Committee. Uh, Brandon Marcello was the first to report that the committee did not like the idea of players on both teams potentially playing nine straight weeks without a week off. I'm gathering that the rest of the story is that Kirk Herbstreit only had part of the story, that he talked to Deion Sanders, who probably wasn't privy because he's not an athletic director. Uh, you know, he's the head football coach. He's probably being asked, hey, are you okay with playing a week zero game? If so, we're going to submit a petition for that. But apparently um, the uh, Colorado petition to play that game was nixed by the Football Oversight Committee. Herbstreit only had part of the story, not all of the story. I still think genius idea for the Pac-12, Colorado, Arizona State to even think like, hey, let's try pulling this off. I also like the idea of the Pac-12 going, hey, we've got an asset here in Coach Prime because Colorado knows it does. Rick George told me earlier this week that the day they hired Deion Sanders to be their football coach, their social media accounts doubled in size. They are looking at double the audience on social media. They are looking at uh, season ticket uh, requests. They expect they're going to sell out their season tickets this season for, for Colorado football games. Huge success. It's a home run. Colorado gets it. They're basking in the glow of new money and new revenue streams and sponsorships. And anybody who runs good business at a high level knows that you can control your expenses and you can control, to some extent, the revenue streams that you're chasing. But if you're a Colorado, your investment in Deion Sanders, the fact that you are willing to spend some money to try to win, is paying dividends today. Now, the Pac-12 Conference trying to draft off of that, I'm all for it. And you should be, too, if you care about the Pac-12 Conference. Because you have a potential deal of Coach Prime on Amazon Prime or Coach Prime on ESPN in a season opener week zero that the Pac-12 was certainly exploring. And maybe this helps explains why there is a little bit of a delay with the schedule release. Pac-12 Conference uh, probably... Six to seven days away from that release of the schedule. I am uh, told to expect it sometime around the 15th, 16th, 17th. Um, I have uh, been also told that, you know, in, in the last couple of years, while the conference has released the schedule in mid-December, that if you look at the last 10 years, more often than not, the schedule has been released in January, not December. So it's not all that late. But given that the SEC and the Big 12 already have their schedules out, already have people clamoring about, you know, here's Georgia's schedule next season. The Pac-12 looks like it has fallen a little bit behind on that front. So, you know, if you want the rest of the story, so to speak, everybody's waiting for the release of the schedule. It appears that the ADs have yet to approve it, but Rick George told me uh, earlier this week he hopes that the schedule will be released in the next week. And you got Herb Street who probably only knew half of the story or part of the story, talking to Deion Sanders and nobody else, who is uh, going on national TV saying that, you know, he believes Arizona State and Colorado were going to play a week zero game. It looks now like that game may have been nixed, but it, it was explored. And again, the fo Football Oversight Committee shot it down. They are uh, certainly tuned in to player safety. They don't want teams potentially playing nine straight weeks of games. Uh, that is the rest of the story on the Colorado front. we got a great show for you today. We're going to take a look at the numbers, 
What does Dave Bar 2, the college football matrix, see when he looks at the Pac-12 versus the rest of college football? What does recruiting ranking have to do with, uh, is it correlated directly, indirectly with wins on the field every season? And which program overachieved, underachieved, when you look at the metrics? Dave Bar 2, college football matrix, gives us the rest of the story next. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I don't know if you listened to Paul Harvey and the rest of the story. I don't know if you remember that. I don't know if you're old enough to remember that. Steven, you remember Paul Harvey? Uh, not really. I feel sad for you. <laughs> Thank you. How about you, Peter? I definitely do remember Paul Harvey as a man. I was probably eight, nine, ten years old. He was on the back end of his career, but I loved the. I would listen to news radio and all the boredom just to get to his stories. Man, it was yeah. great. It was great, Stephen. You want you know during a commercial break or some point of today, get yourself on uh, on the internet, the www whatever, and look up just one Paul Harvey story and listen to one of his the rest of the stories. It's a couple minutes of your life. But there's nothing like it. It's still nothing like it. Uh, there's nothing like Dave Bar Two, the College Football Matrix, uh, who's joining us. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at College Football Matrix. He's joining us now. Do you remember Paul Harvey? Oh, of course, dude. I'm I'm in my mid fifties. <laughs> of course, I remember and know who Paul Paul Harvey was. I love those little stories because he'd always surprise you. You know, he'd tell you about some farmer who had a tractor and then struck oil. And, you know, it was always uh, entertaining. And, uh, you know, the rest of the story, nobody doing that anymore. They ought to do it. They ought to make a movie about Paul Harvey. I'd, I'd watch that movie. Uh, right. Bar yeah. Part two, uh, let's talk a little bit of Pac-12. Uh, I just want first. Let's just start with your general takeaways. You're a numbers guy. You crunch. You crunch the data. You crunch the metrics. What did you see this season? Oh, out of the Pac-12. Yep. Out of, out of, out of, well, out of the out of the Pac-12 is it's got to start with the offense. I mean, that it is the offensive numbers that the Pac-12 put up this year uh, led to the country. It was the most prolific uh, offense team by team uh, in college football. So, uh, you know, when when I'm when I'm thinking when I'm thinking Pac-12, I'm I'm looking at the offensive side. I think they had, I think they had four of the top ten in total offensive scoring efficiency with Oregon, USC, uh, UCLA. Um, trying to remember who was right up there. Now it also means that they had some really crappy defense <laughs> in, in in the conference as well. Uh, but it was absolutely offensive-dominated, and I think the biggest thing, though, besides the offense, is something you and I have talked about for years, and it has to do with perception of a conference. Mm. And what have I this. always told you yeah. on your show about perception of a conference nationally? It's only as good as the Best biggest team. brand. Yeah. That's it, right? It, it, it doesn't matter if Washington State – goes 12 and 0 and Arizona goes 12 and 0 and Colorado goes 11 and 1 those aren't perceived that that that's not perceived as a good conference because your bottom brands your bottom end recruiters are are doing well and so with the with the Pac 12 you have uh, you had all your big brands doing well this year and so I, I think that actually fueled 
the resurgence uh, of the conference is because those brands were doing what people expected of them nationwide. But offensively, look, the average the average team out of 12, the average team was 44th in the country mm. in offensive scoring efficiency. Out of 131, the average team out of 12 was 44th. I think the next closest was the average was 57th. So it was an amazing offensive run, and it was an amazing run for the brands of the Pac-12. Dave Bartu, College Football Matrix, is with us. And some of this is, you know, people are probably hearing you for the first time on this show, but maybe can you go back to how you started? What is it that kind of got your attention? When did it go from you kind of dabbling into you turning this, you know, the College Football Matrix into a thing? Right. Well, it's evolved. I think that's the biggest thing is is the data and my interest in what it's done is is constantly evolved. But it started in 2008. I was driving between analytics jobs that I'd created for myself. Back then, nobody knew what behavior analytics was. And so I ended up creating positions for myself out of U of O uh, in in healthcare and in banking. And as I was driving between them, I'm going down I-5, and I hear this guy named Colin Cowherd in 2008 talking about uh, college football and how talent drove college football betting lines. So I got to my next job, and boom, I started pulling all the recruiting data. And that's where it started, because I saw the behavior uh, in recruiting as it related to national titles, what was that, 15 years ago? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and so I just dabbled in it for years, and then I started going into what was the difference between recruiting and the rest of the outcomes, and that was coaching. Uh, and it just keeps moving along, and then I get on the radio, and then it becomes local, and then it becomes national, and I've written for everybody. Uh, And today we are, you know, my firm is the largest college football coaching staffing firm in the country. That's our new niche. That is what we dominate right now is we help build staffs around the country. Bartu, as you – do that stuff there's things that are interesting to fans there's things that mm-hmm. you know the, the programs want to know how different are those two things when you're talking to maybe a coaching staff or an ad who you're consulting with versus just the stuff that we like to get into and geek out on because we all love college football <laughs> it, it, it is two different worlds you know it's well one example you and i've talked about it on the coaching search side Okay, I've, I've always maintained, now that I've gotten into the world on the other side of the curtain, behind the door, right, what I now understand is there's two rules of a coaching search at any level in college football. Okay, number one, this one is almost true every single time, 99% of the time, the fans don't know anything. It's all wrong. Everything you see is wrong. Everything you see is wrong. So that's your first bullet point. The second one is when something comes out that is true, it is intentionally given out. It wasn't by accident, didn't get leaked, it was intentionally given out. Now, there's a third bullet point, which just says refer back to bullet point number one, <laughs> but as part of the coaching searches, this is what I always advise fans, is wherever the information is coming from, ask yourself, if that person is lying, will they lose connectivity to the head coach? And if the answer is yes, they will lose connectivity, then that person won't lie. Yeah. 
because it can't lose it. Getting connectivity is so valuable and so hard. So when you're parsing through coaching searches, folks, find the people that can't afford to lose connectivity at all. Because I guarantee you, you lie to a head I, I was on the phone earlier today with a head coach, and one of his, uh, one of his unit guys um, did something he wasn't supposed to be doing, talking to his agent, being in public, and he was fit to be tied. He wanted to fire him. And, I mean, one little thing and it's gone. So I, I think the, on the coaching search side, what everybody sees that is out there is almost entirely wrong. And what little is right is intentionally put out to either misdirect or to confirm something. Dave Bartu, the College Football Matrix, is with us. Uh, we're coming off signing day, early signing period. I know you mm-hmm. study recruiting rankings, four stars, three stars, five stars. You also sort of have looked at um, you know, what coaches do with that talent. How do those two things correlate, uh, in, and how do you measure you know, the, uh, the ability, is it the ability for somebody to coach or is it just getting the Jimmies and the Joes and, and that correlates to success? (laughs) No, it doesn't correlate to success. So rule of thumb is 65% of college football is recruiting. The other 35% is coaching. There's maybe like 1%, 5% somewhere in there, depending on what number, depends on what time of year is scheduling. So recruiting, coaching, and scheduling, that goes into everything. everything. Anything else that happens is good and bad luck. Uh, but overall, that's all that college football is. So, But from a recruiting standpoint, this year, 2022, was actually the biggest year I've ever seen for recruiting as it correlated to wins and losses. So, you know, we got 131 FBS teams. They play 12 games apiece, Okay. In games, in all of those football games, I think it's 865 regular season games, 76% of all those football games were won by the better high school recruiter. Better high school recruiter. Didn't even account for transfers. Just the better high school recruiter, 76% of all the football games. So does recruiting matter? Good gracious. It matters immensely but that doesn't mean it's everything you still have to have good coaching because you know that at a 30 uh they, they, there's a big difference perception wise going 10 and 0 and 7 and 3 so coaching is still extremely valuable but if you're having to pick one over the other the guy who can evaluate and recruit the talent best is usually going to win the football game yeah because i look at the recruiting rankings and it was pointed out like georgia wins the national championship wins it going away and then people look at their recruiting class going, oh, they're just going to win it again next year. Look at their schedule. Look at their recruiting class. And I go, well, hold up. Like, you know, there's some really good teams in the top ten in recruiting who were nowhere near the playoff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, look at, look at Texas A&M. So, so coming into this season, there were four teams that had three key areas in common with the last 23 national champion winners. Okay. All, they were all top ten recruiters for the previous four years. They all came into the season with an offensive and defensive coordinator that were three-star or better in our grading system. And we've graded every coach since 2008 that's worn a headset, over 7,000 guys. So you have to have a three-star or better OC and DC. You have to have top ten recruiting. And you have to be top 25 in scoring efficiency the year before. you got to be good before you win at all. So this year, there were only four teams that matched those three things. 
only four. One of them was Georgia. Their weakness, new defensive staff, lost a bunch of players. But your great teams, losing players doesn't matter. But that was Georgia's weakness. Alabama, they, their weakness was they had a very weak offensive coordinator for the third, third year. They had Mike Loxley, lost it. Bill O'Brien last year didn't win it either. So I had Alabama very weak because they had a poor offensive coordinator. Um, the third team, Ohio State. I thought they were weak because they brought in a new defensive coordinator. His defense is hard to learn, and they fall apart in the fourth quarter when the, the pace of play wears them down. So Ryan Day runs 75, 80 plays a game. Jim Knowles, his defenses over his career fall apart in the fourth quarter because the offensive coordinator doesn't slow it down. That was their weakness, but all those teams won big. And the fourth one, which matched everybody else in talent and coaching and previous year performance, was Texas A&M. And they, for whatever reason, they posted the 100th best scoring efficiency offense this year. 100. You're a top five recruiter. You go four and eight. That was one of the worst seasons we've ever seen in the last 20 years out of a top five recruiter. So it can happen. Why? I don't know. All the pieces were in place. Everybody said, oh, they were way overrated. No, they weren't. They just didn't achieve through their potential. And that's a Jimbo Fisher problem. Dave Bartu is the college football matrix. Dave, I'm going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to ask you sort of the formula to win a Heisman Trophy. There's a whole bunch of quarterbacks in the Pac-12 that are coming back probably thinking, can I be a finalist? What do you need to fall into place to get to the downtown athletic club as a finalist? Uh, plus, we'll look maybe a little bit at Oregon and Oregon State, the efficiency that you see with those two staffs and their players this season. Dave Bartu is the college football matrix. Stick around. we got more with Bartu next. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Dave Bartu is the college football matrix. Been kind enough to stick around for another segment. Let's talk a little bit about recruiting and the correlation between coaching and recruiting. Uh, I want to pivot a little bit towards the individual awards. Uh, you know, you see Caleb Williams win the Heisman Trophy. Uh, Oregon has Bo Nix coming back. Michael Penix Jr. is at Washington. Cam Rising announcing this week he's coming back to Utah. Uh, Jaden Delora, Cam Ward, uh, really good quarterbacks in the Pac-12 conference. But Dave Bartu, let's talk about the formula to win a Heisman. I know that you have written about this and studied this. How do you win a Heisman Trophy in today's world? Well, it's it's pretty broad. It's pretty broad. But there's two things all of them have started the season with. They have started the season with a team that finishes in the top 25 and they have started the season with an offensive coordinator that we have graded three-and-a-half stars or better. Ooh. Okay, So when you're talking about these guys, so you mentioned like Delora at Arizona, right? Fascinating watch. Arizona led the country uh, in explosive running plays, I believe, as a percentage. Okay, Their, their offense was dynamic. Are they going to be top 25 next year? Hell no, they're not. No. Right? So they didn't waste a buck on him. But when you start looking around the conference, look at where all the good quarterbacks are, look at their offensive coordinators and the potential that they have. So you got you got Penix at Washington, right? We can easily see that as being a top 25 team. Yep. Uh, Grubb, we talked about this on the show preseason. Who, who are our, 
you know, four big offensive coordinators. Grubb was one of them in the Pac-12. So does Penix check the two boxes of being contender? Yeah, he does. Um, at Washington State, no, we can't check those boxes. We don't expect them to be top 25. Oregon and Oregon State, I think they're going to both be ranked in the top 25 to start the season. Uh, Oregon State, you, you've got Lindgren there. He's, he's, he's three-and-a-half-star or better OC, so whoever's quarterback at Oregon State's going to have a shot. Uh, at Oregon, a lot of people don't know the new offensive coordinator, Will Stein. He's out of uh, UTSA. The guy put up the 11th best scoring efficiency season in college football this year in his first year of calling plays. Huge ceiling. Don't know what the floor is. That's a little bit scary, but huge ceiling. So Nick's coming back to Oregon. There's another top 25 potential team with a rising star offensive coordinator. Then you go down south. We, we know, you know, Williams is going to be set to repeat. That's a top 25 team talent. That's a top 25 head coach. Uh, Chip Kelly with Dante Moore. I know he's new, so let's throw him out of contention as a freshman. Uh, and then Cam Rising, Utah, will they be top 25? Is that where they're going to be? Possibly. Uh, you know, Ludwig is right on the edge between three and three-and-a-half-star offensive coordinator. So if I'm, if I'm splitting wood on this one and I have to go top five, uh, I'll throw Cam Rising out of the discussion because not only do I not really believe in the OC, I think that's a defensive-minded program, I also look at that, and look, they run 59% of the time. He's not going to get the snaps to really be that impressive and be a contender. Yeah, it's fascinating, too, because when I think of rising, something not quite, you know, it, and I looked at the quarterbacks in the Pac-12 today, and it was really interesting because there were eight quarterbacks who threw for 3,000-plus yards last season. That tied the best ever in conference history. Six of them are coming back, and rising – just past 3,000 yards, like, you know, you wouldn't think. And Jaden Delora was second in the conference in passing yards, and, and he's coming back. So uh, I like it. So if you're, if you're laying money here, you're looking at Caleb Williams in a repeat, Michael Penix Jr., and maybe, uh, you know, DJ Uyangalele at, at Oregon State or Bo Nix as a, as a dark horse candidate. Yeah, you know, I, I, would, I would say in that order, right? It, it, it's, it's probably got to be Penix and – uh, and Williams, uh, and then some of the other other contenders in there, uh, but yeah, and rising in the discussion, I'm I'm not buying it. Uh, that, that'd be the one guy that people might say, oh, I'm interested in that guy. I don't think it is. Now, outside of it, okay, I'm gonna, this is my hot take on the Heisman. Yeah. All right. Everybody's heard of Brett Maine at North Carolina, right? Right. Right. Hey, I mean, he's I think he's third in in Heisman betting in terms of odds. Totally bet against him. Don't go there. They, they have a bad defensive coordinator in Gene Chizik. Longo, top ten offensive coordinator in college football, just left for Wisconsin. They bring in Chip Lindsey, who is ranked 317th out of 601 offensive coordinators in our system since 2009. He doesn't have the offense to get it done if he could possibly do it. Yeah. You're fade, talking about Drake May, fade. right, the kid, the kid yeah, that yeah. we saw in the, in the Holiday Bowl. Yeah. yeah, if you could somehow fade him, do it. But don't bet on him because for him to win it, it'd be the first time, like I said, in 23 years with an offensive coordinator that bad that he won, that somebody won a Heisman. We're talking to Dave Bartu, College Football Matrix. I tried to grade Dan Lanning this year, and I struggled with it. Maybe I should have called you. But what do the numbers tell you? What do the numbers tell you about Dan Lanning's first season? 
Stop calling uh, plays on fourth down, dude. <laughs> <laughs> and I say that a little tongue-in-cheek because it's not just him. We ran the numbers on all of college football. We estimate about 71% of all fourth down attempts, not in the fourth quarter, were bad calls. They went against the expected value and return of going for it. So you have a ton of coaches that are using their gut to go for it on fourth down. And from a number standpoint, these are really bad decisions. They're costing more games and they're winning. So, but, but with Dan, um, you and I, you know, preseason, we talked about it. This was a nine and three team. You know, you're going to lose one game because he's a new head coach. Um, Georgia was an expected loss. Uh, you know, and, and so I'd say the only unex- the, the unexpected one uh, was was Civil War. You know, uh, was was the final game of the season. You look at the numbers, um, the progression, the, the the offense was amazing this year. Uh, at the beginning of October, it was 44th in the country. By the end of October, they were down to 13th in the country. Uh, and by the end of the year, they finished sixth in total offensive scoring efficiency. I don't know how you ask for anything better. I really don't. And, and the competition that they played against defensively, uh, look, in the middle of October, they had faced the 70 or the 42nd toughest defensive schedule in college football. They ended up with the 59th toughest one. So I thought the offense was much, much better than we expected. Now, I know a lot of people were, were down on the defense, but the defense progressed throughout the year. They started, they ended September, they were 105th in the country. End of October, they were 99th. End of November, they got all the way down to 78th. So they progressed, which I like to see. I know we don't like being at 78th, but they progressed very, very well. The one caveat to this, and I don't think a lot of people realized it, but inside my numbers, and I'll send you these charts, dude. You can check all of this stuff out. This is all new. I just made these just a week ago. They faced the fourth toughest overall offense in college football schedule this year. Fourth toughest overall offensive schedule in college football. So as much as the defense wasn't where we thought it would be, the offenses they faced for the season – weren't anywhere near where we thought they would be either. It was a lot harder than uh, than we expected going into September. All right, I want you to look at finally one thing here because you know we're we're approaching uh, as you know in 2024 an expansion of the playoff to 12 teams, mm-hmm. and I know in the past there's been a certain way that you would advise a, a Power Five university like Oregon or Oregon State to schedule. How does that change in your mind when you go from 4 to 12? How does the non-conference schedule or maybe even eight conference games versus nine conference games debate, how does that change in your mind when you throw in, hey, they're expanding from 4 to 12? Uh, the, eight ver- the 8 versus 9 is still I- – I'm still 100% in the 8 corner. You're out of your mind. The more games you play internally, the more it hurts your conference. I'm, I'm working on a presentation right now for an AD that wants to stay at eight in the SEC. And I'm making the argument inside the numbers that it's in their best interest for winning games, for having top 25 teams, for getting teams in the playoffs. Oh, and by the way, when we go to 12, at least once in 10 years, you and I are going to be watching four teams in the final four slots of the playoffs. I can promise you that out of the SEC. But I, I still say go to eight, maximize your potential. Now, the one thing that they haven't addressed in this playoff is how much does non-conference count? 
And if non-conference counts the same today as it will tomorrow in the 12-team playoffs, then why schedule tough, right? If, if there's no incentive to schedule tough, then the, the, it's not going to change the scheduling. September is just going to continue to be bad. And if, if everybody goes to nine, September is going to be worse because there's less non-conference games. I would prefer everybody go to eight and try to wait teams seated seven through 12, put a big weight on level of competition and performance in non-conference games. So you still have, even if you lose tough non-conference schedule, you can still win your conference and get into the playoff. Make mm. two paths, but make the non-conference games of significant value. Otherwise, nothing's going to change. Yeah, because I kind of look at the future schedules, and, you know, George is playing four paper soft, uh, tissue paper soft opponents next season in non-conference mm-hmm. games. They'll only get a November test against Tennessee, and, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the Pac-12 going, why are you playing, uh, you know, again, nine conference games is what we anticipate, and why would you be playing crossover games with the Big 12 or somebody else unless you're making a payday on that that really makes it worth your while? Exactly, right? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It's a Chewbacca defense. doesn't make any sense. So, you know, and, and Georgia, nobody's, <laughs> Georgia's not getting penalized for playing four cupcakes. If I was in their situation, I'd advise them to do the same. Stay healthy, you know, be ready for the conference. They've never been penalized for it. So why would they change? Now, if the 12-team playoff, if suddenly the rule was, hey, to be in seed 7 through 12, non-conference games count quadruple, guess what? Georgia's going to suddenly schedule really tough because they want both paths. They want to be able to get in with non-conference or get in with a conference schedule. But until they change that, September is just going to continue to be bad or worse. Dave Bartu, I appreciate you. Uh, Where can people find you if they want to read you, if they want to study what you're doing besides (laughs) Twitter, uh, at College Football Matrix, where do they find you? Right, at a a McMinimums near you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> buy, buy, buy me a beer. I was actually thinking about that. I'd love to hear people's feedback. If I was having, like, college football roundtables randomly at McMinimum sites, because I'm here in Forest Grove. So, you know, it's like, let's let's do some roundtables. But uh, you got Twitter, but you also have my text line. So if you think that's a good idea about McMinimums and having that, hit me, text me, 971-217-8419. I love talking college football and anything that has to do with it. I love you giving out your number. Like, the, does your phone care. blow up after you do that? Uh, no, well, it's sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. It's never been bad. It's right. never been bad. Look, I was the first time I went to SEC Media Days, everybody treated me like crap except two guys. One of them was the SEC commissioner. But everybody else was aloof and just asshats, and I hated all of them. I thought they were cool on Twitter, and then they were a bunch of cold jerks. Yep. Once I got to meet him, and I they said, I'm never going to do that. So I do everything I can to help people with shows, be accessible. Doesn't matter who it is, I'm always available to try to make somebody's life a little bit better, a little bit easier in the college football world. Dave Bartu is the best. I appreciate you, my friend. There he is, the college football matrix. Blow his phone up if you'd like. Our big splash is coming up. <laughs> Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
Every day on the show, uh, we give you our big splash. Uh, today, uh, we've got uh, a big splash coming from the world of UFC. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. Must be the big splash. Well, UFC President Dana White's been in the news in the last couple of few days since uh, his actions on New Year's Eve in Mexico. He was caught on camera slapping his wife in a nightclub. Uh, he appeared before media members today to talk about uh, UFC's apex to, to uh, answer some questions. The 53-year-old Dana White said he didn't want his situation to take the focus away from the athletes who were competing at this weekend's UFC event. But he did say that one thing he wanted to clarify, one thing he didn't expect, one thing he didn't see coming, is that people are defending him. He said, quote, there's never an excuse, there's no defense for this, and people should not be defending me no matter what. All the criticism I've received this week is 100% warranted, end quote. It was an impromptu news conference. It comes at a time in which uh, White's primary business partners aren't talking. ESPN has declined comment. Uh, Endeavor, the parent company of UFC and TBS, the broadcast partner of the Power Slap League, also declining comment. Uh, Dana White went on to say that internal discussions regarding the incident have taken place, including with ESPN, and that he's already been dealing with and will continue to deal with his punishment from the incident. Now, what should the repercussions be? Dana White says, should I take 30 days off? How does that hurt me? Um... I don't know necessarily that this is about necessarily punishing you, Dana White, but it's, I think it's more of the larger context of what happens when someone involved with USC is captured on camera uh, slapping his wife uh, by TMZ cameras or whoever. You know, the fact that he's focused on how does it punish me to take 30 days off, it's not necessarily all about punishing you and he says me leaving hurts the company hurts my employees hurts the fighters doesn't hurt me um i i again think you know dana white's missing the point he said his punishment is that he has to walk around for however long he lives being labeled like he is now well he gets that anyway that's that's the consequence of your action you get that regardless of what punishment comes from your employer See, now to me, this is a, b a larger question about what is the UFC about? Is the UFC condoned domestic violence? Is the UFC okay with its fighters, uh, you know, slapping or hitting their spouses? Like Dana White missing the point here. This isn't just about like, you know, hey, you're a little kid who got in trouble. Go to your room. Okay, that's my punishment. Uh, if Dana White has to take 30 days off, if he's suspended, as the head of USC, or a 60-day suspension, or if he's removed permanently, it says more about UFC and what it stands for than it does the punishment for Dana White. I think that entity probably, at some point, proactively, not in reaction to some radio show host or media members or someone else crying for his suspension, probably needs to take a stand and let us all know what it stands for. Uh, I'm glad that he's saying, hey, I deserve the criticism, um, and I'm glad that he's saying, hey, I know for the rest of my life people are going to label me. I did it. Uh, but I also think there's a bigger question about what does UFC stand for? 
And are they okay with Dana White showing up to this news conference? Like he's saying, I don't want to. I don't want to detract from this event. Well, you're there. What do you think's going to happen when you get in front of the cameras and the microphones? Dana White missing the point in my mind. Stephen and Peter, what do you hear there? Am I missing something, or you know, tell me what you thought? No, I think you're right on, and because what's okay if he's not punished right like it doesn't affect him he might be right it doesn't affect him if he's not if he's punished but what's going to stop then one of the athletes from when they hit their wife to say well the owner didn't get punished why would i get punished doesn't matter like he all he has to go around with this around him and the thought of that he is a uh, you know abuser why am i dealt differently i think it's more of a leadership thing like he needs to take a little bit of leadership a little bit of accountability and say I made a mistake and be punished for it. Yeah, that's the key right there is the accountability, the leadership, and, uh, I mean, hypocrisy, because as sad as it is, at some point in any given period of time, this is going to happen in the UFC, and you're absolutely going to hear that being brought up. I guess he's right in some sort of overarching philosophical sense. He's going to be labeled like this forever. It's deserved, but, I mean, ultimately, you got to do something. It's, It's just a symbolic gesture. You have to take some sort of punishment. For every action we learn in uh, in high school science class, there's an equal and opposite reaction. I think semantic. He can play the semantics game. Say, yeah, you know, technically, it doesn't really hurt me to have the time off, but you know, this is uh, this is an important moment for UFC. You know, it it fights the stigma anyway that it's you know a bunch of you know guys that are that lack class and lack uh, polish who are punching each other in the ring. Uh, and now you've got the head of USC slapping his wife? Come on. Leave it here. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Today, the NCAA Council uh, voted unanimously to update some guidelines for the transfer portal. A lot of people confused about how many times an athlete can transfer. Just to just to uh, demonstrate this, let's go around the room. Stephen, Peter, what do you guys think the rule is, or the old rule a week ago was for transfers? How many times can you transfer? Um, and if you don't know, just say, I'm not sure. I don't know. I, I would have guessed it's... Uh, there's an unlimited amount unless if you have a reasoning to do it. Yeah, I don't know. So they they uh, they originally said one transfer, and then they proposed last year, a year ago, that you could have unlimited transfers, and it got voted down. And so it was only supposed to be one transfer, and then you needed a waiver. But the NCAA was sort of signing off on every waiver that came along. So you got cases like JT Daniels, athletes who have transferred multiple times and are treating it like it's club sports, right? You know, I want to play for a different club. The NCAA today voted unanimously that uh, the, the first transfer is free and easy. You get one free. You get the first one free if you want to transfer in and change colleges. The second uh, time you transfer, you need a waiver. And the waiver requests will be evaluated on a case-by-case basis, but you have to meet one of the following criteria to be granted a waiver, to be, it, it, to be eligible immediately. Otherwise, 
you have to uh, sit out one year. So one of these two things must be true in order to get a waiver. Number one, you have, you have to demonstrate a physical injury or illness or mental health condition that necessitated this, the transfer. You need, uh, you need uh, supporting documentation for this or whatnot, but I do think a lot of athletes will cite mental health uh, and go, hey, you know, and how are you going to argue with that? Hey, it's in my best mental health to transfer. I'm not playing. I'm miserable. I'm depressed. I, you know, and, and maybe they can present some supporting documentation. But that's the first, uh, the first area that, that you, uh, to be granted a waiver, you must, you must, uh, you must uh, meet that criteria. The second one is an extenuating circumstance. Uh, if there was a physical assault or some abuse from uh, teammates or a coach or a sex assault or something unrelated to the student-athlete's athletic participation that is deemed an extenuating circumstance that clearly necessitates immediate departure. I have to get out of this school. It's not safe for me is basically uh, the second area that you can fall under. Now, I think you're still going to see athletes go, hey, I'm having a mental health issue. I'm in crisis. This isn't working for me. I'm away from home. I need to get back to my family. And, and, and look, I'm not going to argue with that. But I do think this pumps the brakes just a little bit, maybe, on some of those transfers who are going, I'm going to transfer four times in four years. And, you know, I'm not surprised at all that the NCAA is trying to cut down on allowing multiple transfers. Um and then any other transfer scenario has to be looked at by the transfer advisory group. Um, and, you know, they will, um, you know, grant transfers beyond that. But let's, let's look at NIL in the portal for just a second, if we can, but, you know, before we dive too deep into this show. These two things are walking hand in hand. And I think that's part of the big problem is you have the transfer portal available. You have players going, hey, it's unrestricted free agency. I at least get one transfer but that's free and clear. And then you also have the collectives that are out there raising money with their respective booster groups going, hey, we have money to spend and we're looking for talent. And we're peeking into the portal to see who's in there. And I think these two things have, have worked hand in hand. And I, what I would like, love to see the NCAA deal with is, you know, they can't really crack down, I don't think, on most of the NIL stuff that's going on. Like, hey, is so-and-so really, you know, endorsing a product for your business or are you just writing them a check? Like, I think that's going to be really hard for the NCAA to enforce that stuff. But I do think that they can crack down on, hey, nobody should be signing, nobody should be engaging in a negotiation uh, for NIL funds before they're enrolled on campus and I am rolling my eyes a little bit at myself because I'm going hey this is going to require buy-in from the NCAA buy-in from the booster collectives and buy-in from the universities not to break the rules but what I think could could curb some of this is if the NCAA ever grew its teeth back and went hey we're we're actually going to deem somebody ineligible if we find out that they were offered an NIL deal prior to enrolling at said university. And, you know, and I think it, you know, nobody's going to, I think it might 
cause the collectives in a lot of places just to go, hey, look, we've got some money for you if you come here, but we're not going to enter into a formal deal until you actually get enrolled and you're on campus. I think it's the best you can do because I still think you're going to have handshake deals. I still think you're going to have promises made, and that stuff was being made anyway. Mike is in Seattle. He has some comments on the changes in the transfer rules. Mike, welcome to the show. Yeah, John, thank you again for doing all this, but this is not going to pass the courts in, in, in the United States of America. This, this, is, this, will, this will go to the Supreme Court, you know, as every other thing has, if it, if it causes people you know, to not have a choice and it's going to get turned down. So I don't expect any changes. Um, because the NCAA can't control it because the individual schools, you know, that make up the NCAA, they're not willing to do it. Yeah, everybody, and everybody's afraid to fall behind, too. I mean, that's part of it is everybody, I hear all the, athletic, all the athletic directors going, hey, we need some guardrails here. We need this to settle down. Simultaneously, they're going, hey, we need to get into this collective uh, NIL space in a big way. And we need to, need to make sure we're not left behind. So it's like you, I think you have you know talking out both sides of their mouth. Absolutely, and and I don't believe the courts in U.S. of A. are going to allow schools, you know, for athletic purposes, you know, to put restraint on the citizens, you know, to move to where they want to go because a student can move every quarter, right? Yeah. And. That's what a football player is. That's what a basketball player is. They are a student who happened to be there playing a sport, but it comes student first. And so, you know, if your daughter could transfer to Portland State and then to, then to Lewis and Clark and then down to Pepperdine every quarter or every week, that's what an athlete ought to be able to do, but it causes chaos. Yeah. So I think it will get struck down by the courts, and we're going to have this forever. Yeah, I, I kind of wonder, too, because uh, thanks for the call. We've seen players who have transferred multiple times granted waivers, almost like, you know, rubber stamped getting a waiver. And I have wondered, you know, the NCAA, you know, lost badly in the Austin case. And I want to get in the weeds on it, but, you know, I've read it. I've looked at it. And what stuck out at me in this in the ruling that came from the Supreme Court is that they basically signal to the NCAA, don't come back here. If you do, it's going to be bad for you. You're not going to get a favorable outcome if you come back here and we see you again in this court. And so I do think the NCAA is mindful of that. But I also think to the caller's point, you know, if I'm the NCAA, I go, look, hey, you're free to transfer. You're just not going to be eligible right away. You can transfer. You just won't have eligibility under NCAA rules. We'll grant you one transfer. Peter, Stephen, uh, did they change anything today? Um, yes, I think that they did. I think that because now, I mean, you can look, especially in college basketball, me as a college basketball guy, you can go through to random teams, and there'll be guys that have played for four different schools in four years. Right. And I think that is bad for the sport. Like, we talk about what we want in our college athletes and our college sports is that we want some unity. Right, but we also want the players to get paid, and we want freedom. Well, we got to kind of buckle down on both of those, right? Like, you can't get all these guys paid and then cry, well, we don't know who these players are. They change every year. Well, because they're going to the school that's going to give them the most money. So I do think that, you know, this is a step in the right direction. I do think, uh, like the caller said, there could be some problems going forward, but 
if you're the NCAA, like you have to put down some type of regulations because this is turning into the wild, wild west. And I do think I like your idea of, you know, you get, or how they have the one year, that's good to go. And then the second year, if you want to do it, that's fine. But you guys set out a year. I think that's okay because you're willing to say, hey, you, know, you can make a mistake. You're a young kid. You're 18, 19, 20 years old. You've made a mistake. Now you're going to got to capitalize. But this, there are some you know repercussions for everything that you do. And I also think, too, though, any athlete, any college athlete that cites mental health as the reason for their second transfer, I just don't know if – if uh, you're going to ever see the NCAA go, nah, we don't think you're having a mental health issue. Yeah, you can't so, do that. You can't you do can't. that. You can't. And so, I, you know, if I'm playing devil's advocate here, I'm going, look, I think at face value they're just trying to deter some people from actually doing it. But if uh, a college athlete gets in a situation where they really want out, they're probably going to be able to find one of those two criteria that I talked about as their – uh, you know, check the box on one of those things. Keith's in Portland. Keith, welcome to the conversation. Uh, thanks, John. I, I was going to say, I think um, the, the no participation opportunity is um, maybe a big piece here that uh, most people don't understand. So what happened in the Jose Perez case at West Virginia, and it's also happening to another uh, women's basketball player at Kentucky, is that they get basically the coach to sign uh, a, a, a declaration saying, you can't come back here. And it's, uh, as everyone knows, or most people don't know, scholarships are one-year renewable, right? So it's not like when you sign up, they give you four years guaranteed. The coach has to renew your scholarship every year. And so coaches, instead of taking the bad press by saying, oh, I'm going to hold this guy up, they just signed the no participation opportunity. And, and they also run off people, too. And that's another issue that people don't talk about. They just say, right. hey, we don't want you here. And then you have to leave. And then when you can say, no, you can't transfer because the coach told you not to leave. And like I said, in, in Jose's case at Manhattan, they refused to sign that NPO. And if they would have signed the NPO, he'd be eligible today, even if it was his fourth or fifth school. Because the NCAA is not going to say, oh, no, you, you can't play as well as, oh, the team didn't want you back. And that's, yeah. I think, a big issue here. Yeah, and I actually support the right of the coaches within the programs to – I don't want to say run off players, but to be honest with players. And I think it happens at, a, at every university, but I hear that some coaches handle this conversation better than others. I hear coaches, you know, and I'll use Jonathan Smith as an example. Uh, I have talked to the family of a player that that was enrolled at Oregon State, kid played on the team last season, and uh, basically looked around and had a conversation with Jonathan Smith at the end of last season and basically was told, hey, there's not a lot of playing time here for you. And I think that's an honest conversation. And I think that, you know, coaches, you know, have 85 scholarships. That's what they can give. And I think, you know, they can't afford to use up scholarships for players who aren't going to help them this year, next year. And I think that's an important part of the conversation that people need to have. But I do feel for some of the kids who say, hey, I didn't come here just to play football, but I'm on scholarship playing football. And then suddenly they don't have a scholarship. And I do feel simultaneously for, you know, uh, several programs, including Oregon, that, you know, over recruit and fill the room up. And I, and I got to wonder if you're at Oregon and, you know, you're a scholarship player, maybe you didn't play a whole bunch, you know, as long as 
as long as you are having a conversation with the coach that's an honest conversation, I'm okay with that because I think we have tipped the scales a little bit toward the player and the power of the player and the transfer portal and NIL. And I do think, you know, it, look, it's a, it's a pro model or it's a, it's a semi-professional model, clearly, that we're seeing in college sports. I don't, I don't think coaches should have the right to cut a kid from scholarship during the season, but I don't have a problem if there's an honest conversation at the end of the season, after the bowl game, hey, I need to talk to you. I don't see you on the field for us next season, and I've got a scholarship attached to you that I need to give to someone else, gives that player the opportunity to get into the portal and go find a place to play if they want to play. Or they could stay right where they are in school and say, Coach, I'm going to stay here, I'm going to pay my own way, whatnot. But I just think as long as there's an honest conversation and it's not done in the 11th hour where the player doesn't have somewhere to go and feels like they were misled, uh, you know, I just think it needs to be an upstanding conversation in the end. I want you to leave it here. you got the bald-faced truth statewide. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Anna's popped into the studio. Uh, story top of the news today. Northwestern has initiated an investigation into the allegation of hazing within its football program. Uh, school was made aware of the allegation at the end of the season. According to the statement, they've hired an independent attorney to lead the inquiry. Uh, players, coaches, and staff members are being interviewed uh, very early in the stages. I don't have many of the details on this other than there is an inquiry in Northwestern uh, ended their football season with a 1-11 record winless uh, in uh, conference play. Coach Pat Fitzgerald is uh, the coach of the program. Uh, hazing. What is hazing about, Anna? What is the deal with hazing? Apparently it's not resulting in wins for the Northwestern program if there is hazing going on. Um, I mean, I just think in the last, I would say, four or five years, you know, the well-being of student-athletes has taken on a different importance and priority. So I think what we're seeing is a reaction to that and kind of a tightening or at least a, um, a more focused approach to, you know, what's going on with how the athletes are being treated and are we okay with this? I don't know. It's really interesting because it's one of those things where societally I feel like it's going to swing real far one way. Yeah. And then it'll settle back in toward the middle. Help me out with this. And anybody, feel free to join in this uh, conversation at 503-417-7575. But I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Mm -hmm. There's a part. I've been on a lot of teams, all right? I grew up playing sports. I played three sports in high school. I played sports in college. I played sports in community college. Uh, I played on little league teams. Um, I hear hazing, and I think, oh, that's bad. I hear team building, and I hear good. What's the difference between team building and hazing? Where does it go sideways? Because, <laughs> because there were a lot of things we did as underclassmen in high school that the upperclassmen got a lot of benefits. And it was like, hey, you've been here. And we see it with NBA teams. Like NBA veterans treat the rookies, you know, kind of like they, they, uh, there's some team building slash hazing that goes on there. But where does it cross the line into being this is egregious, this is a bad thing, we cannot have this? 
I don't know. I think that's what everybody's trying to figure out right now. I mean, because you, 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 it's not just student athletes, but it's like it's also fraternities and sororities, that whole system. I think they're trying to figure out, okay, how much of this is okay. And, you know, there's certainly been cases, right? Like the worst case scenario is where a student or a student athlete is injured, dies, goes to the hospital, name, you know, insert bad situation. And that's that's everything that these policies are trying to prevent. All right. So I, I, I think you can say I know there's a difference between team building and hazing. And I would think hazing is something that causes permanent damage. Hazing is something that causes um, danger, imminent danger to somebody. Hazing is something that, you know, uh, causes, um, you know, power control dynamic, you know, within within the group, like especially when you're talking about older players, younger players. But tell me, like, one of the benefits of team building is establishing respect, teaching mental strength, teaching, you know, uh, camaraderie, uh, helping people pull together, um, creating a lasting bond. Uh, that's all part of team building, right? Right. And everybody wants to say, we, we're going to team build here. But I often just kind of think like, all right, like we know, we know like tying someone up in the middle of nowhere and leaving them out in the cold is potentially dangerous. And, and yet you see cases of fraternities and teams where that actually happens. Right. So what's the difference, Stephen, Peter? You guys have been on teams. It's not black and white. But that's the thing. Help us out. We got we're, we're trying to find the find the line. Let's find. Let's draw a line. What's team building and what's hazing? Yeah, I mean, I think for hazing, it's uh, something that's going to damage you mentally, right? Like I think that's what it is. Um, and I think there is. It's like Anna said. It's not black and white because some things are going to damage someone mentally that aren't going to damage someone else. So um, it is that fine line because it's like. When I was in high school, I was the only sophomore on the basketball team. I had to sweep the floor literally every single day. Like, is that hazing or is that team building? Is that just showing who's in charge, who's you know, who's the seniors on the team? I don't know. I didn't care. It didn't bother me. But then at the same time, it's like then the next year we have you know a sophomore on the team. He doesn't want to do it. Well, it's kind of like your job. Like you have to do it, right? And so I don't. It is a tough line, but I think it is. It's one of those things when you hear what happened, it's very easy to decipher. Okay, that's hazing, and that's team building you know when you see it yes peter sampson hazing team building yeah i tend to agree with steven i mean and even just beyond mentally i mean i think any physical stuff is obviously over the line i never really experienced any of that you know growing up playing baseball is which is kind of funny because I, I i really didn't like a lot of my teammates but we didn't really jerk with each other too much that way but I know that a lot of guys, you do kind of bond with that kind of ritualistic stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not wired that way, so I don't really feel qualified to tell other people what's right and what's wrong. But I think you hit it where it's just, you know what, when you see it, man. There, The NCAA defines it as an act committed against someone joining or becoming or maintaining membership in any organization that is humiliating, intimidating, demeaning, or endangers the health and safety of a person. Um, that's how the NCAA is defining it. But I don't know that you can tell, you know, a uh, college lacrosse team or a baseball team or a football team, hey, here's the definition of it. You know, what are you thinking, Anna? Uh, I just think that it's it's defined differently, literally state by state, institution by institution. 
like you know if you if you look at the legal definitions it's it can be described as any activity that a personal a person intentionally or recklessly endangers the physical or mental health or safety of an individual for the purpose of initiation into admission into affiliation with or continued yeah. membership yeah you lost me you lost me i mean you know yeah. what i mean it's word soup yes it's word soup let's go to the phone lines 503-417-7575 is the number jerry's in southeast portland jerry what's up hey so here's a quiz to see which one of these two things is hazing uh and it plus it depends on a person's mental and emotional state you know some people are uh going to get way more bent out of shape about certain things but when I was at, 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 in college, I, um, when you were a rookie, you had to, and you were in a fraternity or a co-op, you had to wear these stupid little hats called a rook lid when you were a freshman up on campus for the first, you know, week or two weeks, whatever it was. And, of course, I am like, okay, look at all these beautiful young women and everything. Here I am in college my first year. Am I going to dress like a dork and wear this little hat? No, I'm not. And so when you would come back to the dinner and they would bring in the house mother and do the introductions, they would say, okay, who caught Jerry? Anybody catch anybody up on campus? And then, oh, yeah, I got Jerry, I got Jerry, I got Jerry. Well, I was fit, and so I didn't mind doing, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60. Each guy that caught me was 10 push-ups. But then another time they had way too many of them caught me. I hid in the room. A bunch of guys grabbed me, took me down to the rowing crew docks, pants me, and threw me in the Willamette. So uh, which of those is uh, – <laughs> and then left. I, good thing I could swim, and good thing if one guy took mercy on me too and gave me a sweat and, and uh, gave me a ride. But which of those is, is – uh, Yeah. Yeah, I'd rather wear the hat than be pantsed and thrown into the Willamette, if you're asking. <laughs> um, but we've all seen the stories with – you know, hazing incidents, and and uh, by the way, it's not just in in sports. Um, the uh, the organization Encourage did a study of high schools, and they found that music, art, and theater groups were also significantly high in every form of hazing. Cheerleader and vocational groups uh, also had a particular spike in humiliation forms of hazing. So they're looking to humiliate the members. Uh, probably maybe be, that plays a, upon the vanity sometimes that you might find in a cheerleading group, like, hey, the worst thing that you can do is embarrass or humiliate somebody who cares about being embarrassed and humiliated. Mm -hmm. Let's go to Mike in Portland. I need your help on this. 503-417-7575. Mike, join the conversation. Say, John, first of all, you know that saying, be all you can be, which is the military? Yes. They use hazing. Of course, they have another word for it. They call it boot camp. But they they do that to um, determine who's, gonna, who's fit to wear the American uniform. It's hazing, though. And so that's how they determine who qualifies. And, John, one last thing before I get out of here. The other day, you asked the question, um, was Dan Lennon considered a good coach? And somebody on your staff said that Dan Lennon was a good recruiter, so therefore he's halfway there. Well, John, that's wrong. Recruiting 
deals with marketing. It has nothing to do with coaching. So I just wanted to throw that out there, John, real quick. Yeah, but don't but don't you think like the job part of the job of being a good head coach is recruiting and marketing and selling your program and attracting good talent? Coaching, John, see, you, you can't be a little bit pregnant here, man. Coaching deals with <laughs> X's and O's and motivation. When you walk into somebody's house and trying to talk their parents into letting their kids come to that college, you ain't talking X's and O's. You're talking marketing. You're talking about what the school is going to offer them in terms of meals, a good place to stay, they ain't gonna get in trouble. That's what you're talking about when, yeah. when you when you go into their homes. You ain't talking X's and O's. Yeah, but I I just th- I just I disagree. I think that part of coaching is is recruiting, and and I'm okay disagreeing on that because I get what you're saying. I get what the caller's saying. I get that one of the, like some people can teach, some people can coach, some people can really recruit. But if you give me a head coach who can really recruit and really teach and, and knows the X's and O's and knows how to convey it to players, you have a Hall of Fame coach. And and so I would argue, like, Kirby Smart at Georgia has demonstrated he can recruit his pants off, and he has demonstrated he can coach and he can really put together a staff. And I think those two things walk hand in hand because you could have a great teacher who is a fantastic teacher, and if he doesn't attract any talent, you're uh, not going to win very many games. They'll be well coached. They won't be very talented. Josh is in Vancouver. Josh, join the conversation. You want to talk hazing? Yeah, John. I, w- I was gonna. It's funny. Sometimes I get thrown these complete curveballs by previous callers while I'm sitting yeah, holding it. Uh, so hey, real quick, uh, I just I want to respond to that previous caller for a second with just something simple. Maybe somebody should reach out to Scott Frost and ask him how well marketing played in his ability to recruit. That's all I'm going to say about recruiting and marketing. Uh, but anyways, hey, Hazing, I, I was sitting and I was listening to the conversation, you know, with you and Anna, and I was thinking about, you know, really what the difference feels like. I feel like hazing and bullying are one and the same, with the exception that the only difference is, is is somebody being bullied by a group of individuals. Um, and when we're talking about what it feels like and, you know, we all know it when we see it, I think that's really what it boils down to. In the circumstances, whatever the, the circumstances are, do you have a group of individuals for a certain reason bullying somebody and making them feel less than they are? Um, when I was in high school, I was never part of – we didn't have bullying rituals on any of the team sports that I played. We didn't have, uh, you know, any initiations for any of the teams that you, you know, that you that I had ever played on. Uh, but we did have a circumstance where uh, a kid, uh, kind of bullying a, a younger teammate, he urinated in his Gatorade bottle. You know, what he deemed as a joke. Nobody thought it was a joke. No, not one single player on our team thought it was funny. And when it got found out and the administration got involved, the kid ended up, it went before the administration, he got expelled from school, uh, charges were pressed against him, and that was the appropriate thing. I mean, and this we're talking back in 1997, you know, 96, 97 when that happened. Um, so, you know, I, you know, I just think that, you know, we're talking about the, the making somebody feel less than they are, 
circumstance versus something that, you know, to your point, is team building and, and kind of giving somebody a little bit of good-natured fun to make them feel like more a part of a group. Uh, I just think that those are two starkly different people. And if Northwestern feels like they got to open an investigation, i got to think that it's because somebody definitely did not feel like, you know, this was good-natured ribbing to be to be feeling more part versus, uh, you know, making them feel like they were less than. So that's yeah. my thoughts. Thanks, yeah, John. I, I like the, uh, the, question, the question there or the association of the word bullying with hazing. Is it are those two terms synonymous? I think they can be, but see, I just want to be careful because I I've never been part of something similar that involved hazing. Like the 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 closest I've been is like being thrown into a newsroom, right, as a rookie reporter, and you know whatever jokes were played on me, you get to go to the gorge to cover you know freezing rain, that sort of thing. But they didn't like you know take you outside and. You know, super glue gummy bears to your forehead. <laughs> no, you know but, what I mean. And That's what. I, and like you didn't either. Like you weren't part of a fraternity um, when you but, were in. But college. I played on. I played on college baseball and, team. And, okay. You know. Okay. So how much did you experience? Because I, I need to hear from people to balance okay. this out. Who, who can say, look. Hazing's just part of the ritual, and there is team building that comes from it because, you know, people bond over adversity. I, I cringe at hazing because I, I attach a negative connotation to it. But I'll give you an example. Rashid Wallace is with the Trailblazers, okay? Everybody remembers Sheed, okay? And the dynamic uh, on an NBA team where there are rookie players and veteran players is a really interesting dynamic. The rookies will come in, and for the whole season, the veteran players may assign them tasks. The veteran players may say, Rook, you're going to carry my bags this season. And on every road trip, you know, rookie guard has to carry Steven's bag. Uh, as Steven is, let's say Steven's with, with the Blazers. They, he has to carry his bag. Um, Peter Sampson may be a veteran on the same team and say, hey, you know, when we're on the road, I want, um, I want donuts uh, before every road trip. Mm -hmm. And you need to bring it to the team plane every time we go on a trip. It's your job to bring them on the plane. And the rookie has to bring it. One of the rituals the Blazers had back in the day is that rookie players would shag the balls at the end of the shoot-around. Yeah. So there would be, you know, invariably there's basketballs just all over the place sure. inside what was then the Rose Garden Arena. And the players would run around and get them. And I remember Zach Randolph was a rookie that year. So was Quintel Woods and Zach Randolph. They were rookies, and Rasheed Wallace had a fun time with them, had a fun time either team building or hazing them. And what he did with them is they would have to scramble around at the end of the shoot-around and get all the basketballs, right? Mm -hmm. Think about Zebo and Quintel running around the <laughs> arena at the end of the shoot-around. Well, the veteran players started, like, intentionally, like, leaving the balls all over the place during the last shooting drill. They would just kind of, like, put one over here, one over there. Right. Rasheed Wallace took a basketball and he punted it into the 200 level uh -huh. at Moda Center yeah. at the end of the shoot-around. Go get it, Rook. Team building or hazing? And to me, like, that's just good-natured team building, I guess. But that's the thing is it depends on the person. Like, if you get a rookie who over time says that this is, you know, psychologically damaging to me, then we start to get into the realm of this being hazing. Team building or hazing, Peter, Stephen? 
Um, I'll I'll go. I I think it's I think with Ann, I think it's more team building, but you do have to be careful, you know, especially when you're dealing with Zach Randolph and the Hoop Fam. Like <laughs> you you may you may not want to boot it up to the second uh, 200 level. There. Yeah, stay out, stay out of Happy dogs. Valley. <laughs> yeah, I I mean I think it's hazing, but it's not inappropriate hazing if that makes sense like it's it's light light hearted you know sort of conventional stuff that's no big deal okay so uh let's go further i'm at the practice facility and it's the end of a practice and uh same year and rashid wallace at the end of the practice finishes shooting his free throws and as he's leaving to go into the locker room he turns and he heaves the basketball across the court okay Mm -hmm. same thing he's trying to leave like go get it it's an Easter egg hunt. Right. And he accidentally hits Ruben Boomshay Boomshay in the family Wait, jewels. Are you making this up? Not making this up. <laughs> these are real stories. Really? I've heard these. Ruben Boomshay Boomshay is left <laughs> writhing on the court because oh, Rashid was throwing the ball to have Quintel and Zach retrieve it, and it hits Ruben right in the groin from like. 70 feet away. Okay. I that team. And I don't think Rashid even saw it. He hucked it. I saw it. He hucked it and then took off to the locker room. Like he turned, Ball he threw lie. it, and, and it hit Ruben. Like, dodgeball, you're out, Ruben. Okay? In that kind of way. Ruben drops. Media sees it. Team building or hazing? Oh, that is Not true. so funny now, is it? It's still kind of funny. Seems like an accident. <laughs> It's still kind of funny. See, I don't know. So you have that, and then you compare it to, you know, uh, college teams that are forcing athletes to drink entire bottles of vodka and incapacitating them. Or you compare it to Navy SEALs that, you know, they train with tear gas, and they're forcing the new recruits to sing happy birthday as they're gasping for air. I mean, there's just... But isn't that part of training, like military training? You might be in a situation that's uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. So, like, with the Navy SEALs, we go, okay, well, war's going to be hard. You, you might get hit in the nuts with a basketball. <laughs> it happens. Rasheed was doing him a favor. This happens. Be prepared. Tough up. <laughs> Toughen up. <laughs> I sh- we should get Ruben on the show. Oh. Get him on the show. Ruben joins us. Hi. <laughs> Leave it here. You got the BFT. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. You know who I feel bad for right now? Anna, do you know who I feel bad for? I can't imagine. Jeremy Renner. Why? Because Jeremy Renner uh, had a horrific snowplow accident. Did you know this? I kind of heard about it. Right. That's why I feel bad for him. Okay. Because I think it it happened on New Year's Day. Yeah. And I think between, hey, Happy New Year Uh and DeMar Hamlin getting hurt. Yeah. Jeremy Renner has been flying under the radar. Yeah. He's been uh, in the hospital. Yeah. In a- a- action movie star Jeremy Renner. Yeah. It, Marvel movies, right? Like, yeah. like how would you? Yeah. Hurt Locker? Was he in Hurt Locker? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I feel bad that he's not getting the uh, empathy that he should be getting. Yeah. I'm going to give him a little right now. Okay. We are. You're doing a good job. Do you guys, did you guys, were you aware Jeremy Renner was hurt? No. Can't say I was. <laughs> See? <laughs> This is an actor. Wasn't on your radar. He had a horrific. <laughs> Wasn't on my feed. 
He had a bad accident. Mm. So, star of the Avengers, Peter, like, you know, he got airlifted. Yeah. Yeah, I he guess it's terrible. crushed by a snowplow. My goodness. He looked like hell. He even put in a, he put a picture of himself on Instagram. This is how bad it is. Yeah. He had to take a picture of himself and put it on Instagram to get people to notice. Yeah. Hey, I'm actually hurt. Look how bad I look. <sighs> look at Here's the photo. That's... Okay. Yeah, I see. I feel bad for Jeremy yeah, Renner. He doesn't look well. And I'm not. I'm not blaming. Don't at me. I'm not blaming Demar Hamlin or anybody else for Jeremy Renner not getting any <laughs> empathy. I'm just saying it. It unfortunately, I think between a bunch of news and the new year and people, you know, I don't think people were tuned into it. Is this the part where you say this is why you don't go to the mountain? I actually don't go to the mountain. I don't. I'm not a big man. <laughs> going to be further evidence I'm, of I'm not a big don't. snow guy. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'll do it. Yeah. Like you said the other day, there's a holiday coming up, three-day weekend, and, you know, like, hey, maybe we should take the kids up and let them, you know, ride an inner tube or whatever. Mm-hmm. The minute that came out of your mouth, I was just like, okay, I'll yeah. go do it. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I don't, I'm not a big snowplower, like snowmobiler guy. Mm-hmm. That's not me. Yep. You know, so be careful out there if you are a snowmobile. Is there By anybody? the way, this yeah. didn't happen on a mountain. Where, where did it happen? He was just, he was moving snow from his driveway so that his family members could leave his home after they were ringing in the new year. You don't feel bad for that guy? I feel bad. I didn't say that. I feel terrible for him. He was also helping clear the snow out of his neighbor's home. And Peter and Stephen, they don't have any kind of, you know, they don't, nothing in your heart for this guy. Yeah, I mean, pretty bad. I feel pretty terrible bad, yeah. for him. Yeah, for yeah guys are pretty bad. It's I mean, I feel bad. I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do anything about it. But you, I do feel bad. You know what? I wish two snowplows had fallen on him. <laughs> oh, so Don't even say that because somebody will grab that that little clip. Yeah, Peter, you're right. And be like, what Peter Sampson said. No, I feel terrible not for him. Peter it's said. awful. Yeah, I say things all the time, and I'm like, yep, somebody's gonna grab that one. Um. But uh, I just I felt bad for the guy, and I thought, gosh, you know, nobody's talking about him in that way. Uh, who else? Who else needs to be talked about right now that isn't getting talked about? I don't know. I'm stuck on this story now because he went to retrieve his own snowcat, which is apparently called a piston bully. And no, I uh, thought that was an actual cat. Mm-hmm. He was getting a cat out of the snow or something. Yeah, it's a large uh-huh. piece of snow removal equipment. See, we don't have. And then those what happened? It parts. rolled on him or something and crushed him. Yeah. So after he successfully towed his personal vehicle from its location where it was stuck, he got out of the piston bully to speak to a family member, and that's when it started to oh. roll. Mm-hmm. That's one of those yep. things. He got run over you gotta by be his careful. own piston bully. You got to be careful with equipment like that. Yep. You, you just you can never be too you know all right so I'm gonna go on a little thing here and I want you guys to think about it who isn't being talked about that should be talked about right now on that vein when it comes to sports I have a couple that I want to share I want yours as well 503-417-7575 is the phone number weigh in tell me who do we need to be talking about when it comes to sports that we aren't talking about Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Who should we be talking about? We're talking about the NFL playoffs. Aaron Rodgers gets a lot of run. Tamar Hamlin, obviously, uh, deservedly has been a dominant story in the news cycle. Dana White talking about the New Year's Eve uh, slap. He slapped his wife. But uh, there's a lot flying under the radar. Who should we be talking about? 
417-7575 is the number. John's in Klamath Falls. John, who needs more sunshine on their story? Peyton Hillis, a retired NFL player that uh, got injured trying to, uh, not trying, but successfully uh, saving his kids from drowning. Yeah, that was that was was that like a week or two ago? I, yeah, I, yeah, it was about a week, week and a half ago, right around the same time as the Hamilton uh, situation. A couple days later, I believe. And I, I actually think that would have been a bigger story too. That's another one that uh, you know when you talk about you know really sad story. Um, you know, and Stephen, did that make news updates? And and uh, yeah, yeah it, uh, I haven't found. I haven't seen nothing on news updates on him. Last I know, he was still in the hospital yeah. doing okay. But yeah, yeah, I Peyton. did not. I did not put him in any of my updates. There's just other, too yeah. much other stuff going on. Yep. Yeah. See, there he is. He's in a Florida hospital. January fourth, Peyton Hillis, former running back in the NFL, played for the Broncos and the Browns, had to be airlifted to a hospital in Pensacola, Florida. He went into the water trying to save his children from drowning, and uh, he. Uh, Ended up uh, in, in critical condition. He remains there. So uh, saved his kid, you know. Like, we're not talking about that? No, Anna? We should be. We should be. Yeah. Uh, who else? He who was el- coughing up sand, and they're worried now about his kidneys and lungs. <sighs> who else should we be talking about that we're not talking about? You got a nomination, Stephen? Peter? Uh, I, you know, it's hard to go after that one because it's a serious one. I was going to go just yeah. actually in sports. Um, yeah, do it. Uh, do sports. Yeah, Nikola Jokic. Uh, okay, you took mine. Ah, oh, sorry. Yeah, he, I mean, he's averaging 25 points, almost 11 rebounds, uh, almost 10 assists as a 7-footer, shooting 61% from the field. I mean, he's putting up numbers that we have never seen in the NBA, and it's going to be very interesting to see with the Nuggets being the number one seed in the Western Conference can he be a back-to-back-to-back MVP? Like, people will not realize, like, mm. that's how he's in this type of, you know, uncharted water right now. And, he, and he, you know, I, when I was impressed with him was he got skinny. Yeah, he, cha- he changed his body. Like, you know, going back to that uh, Nuggets-Blazers series when the Blazers made the Western Conference yep. Finals, I mean, he played, you know, like 50 minutes in those three overtime games, but he was chubby and out of, out of, out of shape and just huffing and puffing. He's he's in good shape now, and he's playing really like solid defense. You look at defensive numbers; he's actually pretty solid on the defensive side. Like he may be the best player in the NBA, and we still will never recognize it. Yeah, I, and I remember him in that series because a lot of people were making fun of him, and then he came back that next year. He was all slimmed down. Uh, Anna, who should we be talking about that we aren't talking about? Uh, well, I don't know. Tennis star Naomi Osaka is pregnant. She was uh, the big star from the Summer mm-hmm. Olympics. Mm-hmm. And I remember she had kind of a mental health thing that was going on where she ended up walking away, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she's not going to play at all, she says. Yeah. Um, and she's expecting a baby. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Dad's a rapper named Corday. You sound really hip right now. <laughs> say it confidently. Just say it confidently. Oh, yeah. no. Just say it like you know it. I can't even pretend like I know it. Yeah. There you go. Not up on my rappers. Well, you can tweet at me, at John Canzano BFT. Tell me who we should be talking about. I'll tell you what we're going to be talking about here after the break. We're going to give you the five at five, the five biggest, baddest stories going on. We will shovel coal on the stories that need to be talked about after the break. Uh, I, I thought you would save Osaka for the five at five. No. 
I've got others. I'm impressed of the depth of your stories that are coming up oh, here thanks. after the break. Can't wait to see what Anna's got. Uh, plus, uh, we'll talk a little bit about the NFL. we got NFL playoff games coming up this weekend. Huge weekend for the NFL. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. I love it. Uh, a lot of people tweeting, uh, keep your suggestions coming about who or what we should be talking about. You can also call in at 503-417-7575. We're going to talk about what we talk about coming up in the 5 at 5 momentarily, but I'm going to take one phone call. Michael's in Springfield listening on Fox Sports Eugene, powerhouse affiliate here on the network. Michael, what should we be talking about that we're not talking about? Well, uh, hey, John, good to talk to you. Go Beavs. Um, I think we should be talking about how many uh, young athletes um, that we're losing right now during, due to uh, heart conditions. Mm-hmm. Like who? Well, I mean, there's multiple lists of them. We lost an MMA fighter this week. We lost a 16-year-old girl flag football this week. Uh, we've lost, you know, 1,101, I believe, is the number athletes due to heart conditions in the last two years alone which yeah, is the, the girl in uh, the girl who the flag football player who died that that one really got me Anna that one got you too I remember we talked about that she had a pre-existing heart condition and she had been more or less cleared by doctors mm-hmm. um, you know they're now saying she died of natural causes but man she loved to play flag football and you know her parents said you know the they were waiting for an official diagnosis on her condition, but really tough, really tough. You know, I, I think all kids out there, and look, we had Jeff Heller on of the David Heller Foundation earlier this week. If your kid's going to participate in a sport, go to uh, davidhellerfoundation.org to find out what you can do. You should get a cardiac screening for your kids if they're participating in an event in a, in a sport especially if they're a teenager and, you know, it's part of their physical, ask for a cardiac screening. And, and also make sure that your, your club or your high school has an AED device that's in the gym. The David Heller Foundation provided more than 300 of those to different schools in, in the state of Oregon over the last uh, 15 years or so. So make sure that you do that. Do you have something you want to add to that? Yeah, it's just, like it's not, you know, it's not beyond reason, I think, to kind of push, if you can, to get a more serious screening. Because we all know, like, when your kids go to play sports, often that physical, that sports physical is very rudimentary. They're certainly not doing an EKG. They're not doing an ultrasound of the heart. And uh, it's not that hard to pick up that there's an anomaly. And often these kids who die are born with conditions that nobody even knows about because they're a lot of times asymptomatic until, um, you know, the big event, yeah. and then they're gone. Yeah, so it's and, just something to think about, you know, if you've got a kid that's heavily playing sports. And if you're born with an abnormality, you may not know it, you know. Or if you have an enlarged heart, you may not know it, and you may be symptom-free. But, you know, I, uh, I know we had Jeff Heller on the show, and if you want to grab that podcast, important podcast, I think – uh, it, it's one of our interviews that we did. I think we did that on 
Monday or Tuesday? What day is this? Today's this is Wednesday. Wednesday. Yeah. It probably was Monday. Felt like Monday. It felt like a Monday yeah. thing. Um, and Jeff Heller joined us to talk about his son who, you know, they lost their son at the age of 17 because of an enlarged heart. I really appreciate Michael in Springfield bringing that top of mind. All right. Let's do the five at five. Five biggest stories going on. Let's do it. The five at five. Brought to you by Mercedes-Benz of Wilsonville. See more than 4,000 vehicles at Swickert.com. One more time, I'll make DeMar Hamlin part of the 5 at 5. He was discharged from the Buffalo Hospital today. After more than nine days in two hospitals, he is out. He's back home with his family. He went through comprehensive evaluations, series of cardiac and neurological and vascular testing. This is just a home run, uplifting story. Not just for the NFL, but for mankind. For crying out loud, it, it, I just think, captured the country in a way that few other sports events, potential tragedies ever have. I'm glad he's home. Glad he's out of the hospital. Glad he appears to be, uh, you know, on his way to being getting back to 100% sometime. Anna, number two, go. I'm going to piggyback off that because I'm fascinated by a sidebar story regarding his release from the hospital. It turns out, just a few days after he went into cardiac arrest, he filed for trademarks. So the phrase, did we win? <laughs> and three is back. He, he applied for the trademarks for those phrases with the United States Patent and Trademark Office. He intends to use those phrases on shirts, clothing, jerseys, sweatshirts, hats, pants, Printed, downloadable posters, mugs, ornamental novelty pins, as well as educational and entertainment surfaces like motivational and educational speakers. His head coach, Sean McDermott, talk about him getting home. Grateful, first and foremost, that he's home and uh, with his parents and, and his brother, which is great. Um, I'm sure it's felt like a long time since he's been able to be home naturally there, and uh, I'm sure it's a great feeling. And, yeah, we'll, we'll leave it up to him. You know, his health is first and foremost on our mind as far as his situation goes. And then uh, when he feels ready, um, you know, we welcome him back as, uh, as he feels ready. He's home and he's back to business, apparently. Well, someone, someone in Somebody. his circle is thinking ahead, and I, I, I actually kind of like it. Somebody uh, getting a show business. Not show friends. Some of his okay. shirts, though, he's putting out, uh, he, he's going to donate the proceeds back to the UC Trauma Center to help save him. So that's, that's pretty cool. And that's fine. That's great. That's fine. Um, a little bit of news on the stadium front in uh, Major League Baseball that, that some Major League Baseball to Portland proponents may find interesting. Oakland failed to get some funding for their Howard Terminal Ballpark. Uh, San Francisco Chronicle reporting today in what I think is an important story that, you know, the ballpark is uh, having some issues here. Uh, did not get funding. There's just been problems in Oakland left and right when getting this thing done. But they failed to secure $180 million that they were counting on that would have benefited this project at the Howard Terminal. I think a lot of us have, short, have, have closed the book on maybe the A's landing in the state of Oregon. Uh, in this cycle, I just don't think city leaders in Portland were ready to bring a Major League Baseball team to the area. And let's face it, Las Vegas is way ahead of the game. I, I just keep thinking the A's are going to end up in Vegas somehow, some way, and 
The news today, a bit of a blow. The A's, uh, the A's need to, uh, I guess, stop pretending that they're going to stay in Oakland and get them to Vegas. Make this, make this thing end. Let Major League Baseball get on to expansion, which is the next move, and and then maybe the Portland Diamond Project has a chance to participate. Hannah, go number four. So this is interesting. Uh, there's a new trailer out for Netflix's new documentary series. It's on the PGA Tour. Huh. And uh, it turns out they picked a right time to start documenting behind-the-scenes content because they actually capture the battle between the PGA Tour and Live Golf. Do we, is it LIV Golf? LIV. I, I would Whatever. say LIV. Some LIV. people say Live. Okay. Uh, yeah. LIV. So the, the documentary it actually captures that whole fiasco as that battle came to a head with the top professional golfers in the world defecting to the new Saudi-backed league, leading to their suspension from the PGA Tour. So you will see in the Netflix show, you know, Brooks Kepka and Dustin Johnson, and they're all in the trailer, which is out now. It's called Full Swing. I like that. Put it on my list of things that I need to watch. Um, did you guys happen to see Odell Beckham Jr. get kicked off an airplane in Miami? Did you guys see any of this? No, I did not. Apparently, Odell Beckham Jr. Um, you know, got kicked off an airplane in Miami. He was apparently sleeping on the plane and refused to buckle up. Police were called. Police told him, we're going to have to deplane everybody on the plane, and then you're still going to have to get off. Odell Beckham Jr. told them that's fine, and so the entire plane in Miami just about three hours ago had to be deplaned, and Odell Beckham Jr. was kicked off the plane. Does this give you any pause on having him as part of your team? You're saying that I read something about this with him when he was visiting the Cowboys, I swear, unless I'm imagining it. This just happened? Unless the body cam, maybe the body cam footage was just released in the last two hours? Possibly. Yeah, yeah I'm looking at it now. It looks like the body It looks like the body cam footage came out. It looks like this actually happened just after Thanksgiving. Okay. Does that make sense with the timeline? Yes, and it gives me okay. a little less pause because if this had happened twice in six weeks, this okay. is, there's something going on. Okay, so here's... Here's what I got. The footage was released two hours ago. He was kicked off the plane for refusing to buckle up. What? Like, why? Why? Just put the seatbelt on. He's pl- he's saying now that he was sleeping, but he appears in the body cam footage to be wide awake, and uh, flight attendants do not appear to be happy. So, yes, the, the footage was released just in the last two hours. Now, now I have it. Miami International Airport. And that is the 5 at 5. Anna, what do you make of this? Odell Beckham Jr. Uh, well... Look at him. Here he is. He's I on know. his phone. He's on his phone. He's refusing to buckle up. He's in one of those, like, super cushy flights, you know, yeah. where you have your own personal space, and you have, like, the seat that reclines so far that it's almost like a little, like, lazy boy on a plane kind of thing. One of those, like, dream flights. Um, I don't know. His his attorney or somebody with his group is saying that this did not have to be an incident. Yeah, it didn't. Put your seatbelt on, like everybody else. <laughs> He's, you know, they're saying that he he would put his seatbelt on, but he was informed that it was too late, 
and that he would either have to get off the plane. Basically, his side is saying that the flight attendants were just trying to do a power move over him and, you know, exert their authority. Well, major news story, apparently. It made our time, our five at five, and <laughs> I, read the, uh, I read the story wrong, uh, thinking this was two hours ago. The footage was released two hours ago. So, um, also, by the way, Odell Beckham Jr. got angry when passengers – I'm looking at the body cam footage – other passengers were telling him, get off the plane, because they didn't want to have to deplane, because yes. you know what happens? Then that plane's delayed, right? like two hours, which right. is what happened. Right. So they were yelling at him, and he was yelling back. What do you do in that situation if you're Odell Beckham Jr., and they're saying, hey, you need to get off the plane, or we're going to deplane everyone? He basically said, if you're kicking me off, you're, everybody has to get off. Yeah, not a good look, huh? Selfish. Not a team player. It gives me pause, guys. It does. I think it's a Karen moment for a uh, blue chip receiver. It gives you, it gives you pause, like on the on the field. Like, like on like, do you want this? In, this individual is saying I'm bigger than everybody on the plane. If I have to get kicked off, everyone's getting kicked off. To me, that's symptomatic of something else. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I'd want him on my team. Uh, <laughs> you take him right you take away. Him. Yeah. Charter your flights. He's fast. Tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> Just, just play. Steven's like, I can haze him. We'll get that under control. Yeah, yeah I mean, it wasn't a, it wasn't a haze job. <laughs> I don't know. Do you think the flight attendant could have handled it differently? Because I'm looking at the footage. It looks like they just had very little patience with him. It feels but... like. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like you kind of have to do a lot to get kicked off the plane mm-hmm. these days. Like we've all seen real bad behavior. You know, plane like air travel's stressful enough as it is. And it really has to rise to another level before you're getting officers on the plane and getting escorted off. It's really annoying. Uh, I will tweet out the footage of this so you can see it. But um, all that Odell had to do was put the buckle around his waist and go to sleep. He would have been fine. Leave it here. You get the BFT. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Uh, I watched the uh, whole five minutes or so of that body cam footage of Odell Beckham Jr. getting kicked off that plane November 27th uh, at the Miami-Dade International Airport. And uh, I got to say, it would give me pause. I mean, he's sleeping on the plane. He tells uh, law enforcement that, you know, he's been up all night. He was at a, he just came from a club to the plane. Uh, the uh, flight attendants are obviously annoyed with him. And then when faced with the option of either voluntarily deplaning or forcing everyone on that full flight to get off the plane, the dude says, hey, uh, no, everyone can get off. Uh, you, you know, if I have to get off the plane, everyone else is getting off the plane. It's, you know, I, I don't know. I to me, I get it. Sensational player, uh, you know, great receiver. But do you really? I, I mean, I just, I don't want to. Like, what gave me pause about it was just the same kind of feeling I had. And you know, maybe he uh, is injured. Maybe he was having a bad day. Maybe he was going on no sleep on top of no sleep. But just kind of unreasonable and uh, difficult. And I wonder. If that manifests itself somehow, if he's part of a team, am I going too far there? No, you're not. I mean, I, it, it goes kind of with how his 
you know how he's been portrayed basically his whole career, right? That like he's a me guy. He's very selfish. Um, doesn't necessarily help the team. And it's interesting because you know two seasons ago when he was on the Rams, that label got washed off a little bit because you know he took a back seat, he took a secondary role, and he really thrived at it. And then unfortunately hurt his knee. I you know I do want to see what he is like when he comes back. Is he going to resort back to the old Odell Beckham where you know he's proposing to go or uh, to the Nets? And trying all the attention to himself, or is he going to be a me or a team guy like he was on the Rams? I mean, I, I don't think you're over the line here by saying that because of this incident, like you wouldn't want him on the team. It does make sense. It just would give me pause. I have I have questions about it. Uh, another story that I I noted today that I think is pretty interesting is people may remember uh, former NBA guard Smush Parker, William Parker. Uh, in the league, variety of different teams, five total seasons, played in the D-League as, as well. Um, he had some feuds with Kobe Bryant. People may remember that when he was on the Lakers team. And uh, he, he later said after Kobe died in the helicopter crash that one of his big regrets was that he never mended his relationship with Kobe. Uh, Parker's 41 now. He's pursuing a career as an NBA official. He wants to be a referee in the league. I want rapid reaction on this. Peter, Stephen, when you saw this story or heard this story for the first time, your reaction? I love it. I, I wish we had more ex-players that were referees because they understand the nuances of playing the game. Obviously, officials uh, now, they certainly understand the rules. They understand, get to know a lot of these players. But guys like like Haywood Workman, Leon Wood, I think Bernie Fryer was a player as well. I, I just think those guys have an inherent understanding of maybe, uh, you know, players being passionate, getting fired up. I, I have a feeling, and I haven't looked at the data, maybe they're less likely to, to have have an itchy trigger finger when it comes to uh, firing off technical fouls or ejecting players or understanding where a player's coming from if they're trying to sort of plead their case, at least in a you know in an emotional manner. So I wish we'd see more of it. We probably won't just because of all the money that these guys make. They don't really have to do it, but good for him. Yeah, I think it's great. I, all the points that Peter made, and then, you know, at the same time, like, because you're not going to get the recognition, right? Like, Haywood Workman... Like, we remember him as a player a little yeah. bit, a little bit as a ref, but, like, it's not like he's famous because of it. So, like, Smush Parker becoming a ref, if he becomes an NBA official, it's not going to bring fame or notoriety. Like, no. he's doing it because he wants to help the game grow and become a better basketball game. And he gets to stay around it, too, yeah, right? And, yeah, like, and he mean, wants to be a know. part of it. I think, it's, yeah. I think it's great. And it's one of those jobs where, again, it's very thankless, but if you're a really good one, then you know, you're notarized, you're, you're kind of known as that guy. And so I think, it, it's, like Peter said, to be able to play the game and then go out there and ref and maybe give a guys some leeway or know what to look for, you know, little sneaky veteran moves that guys pull. I think it's just uh, it's all good in all situations. You mentioned Haywood Workman. He played 359 games uh, before becoming an official in 2008. Um, uh, Leon Wood did it as well. Leon Wood played. He was the number 10 pick in the 84 draft. He played uh, only 274 games in the league and then became an official in 1996 and then. Uh, people may remember Bernie Fryer played in the ABA and the NBA in the 70s and then became an official in the late 70s and, uh, you know, has been the vice president and director of officials in the NBA since 2008. So it's not the first time that he would be the – Smush Parker would be the fourth. I have uh, messaged with Parker. I'm trying to get him to come on the show. I, I think it's a really good story. I want to know what motivated him, and it may very well be. Like we see cases of athletes – uh, especially a guy like Smush Parker, like I don't know what his total earnings were. 
in the NBA, but, you know, he wasn't a guy that, you know, he, he played 274 total games. You know, he probably didn't make a mint in the NBA, but he, you know, he made enough money to probably uh, six, six and a half million. Six and a half million. Okay, so he, he made enough money, but he's probably facing a life after basketball where, you know, if he really wants to be part of basketball, there's two options here. It's coaching and at what level, or then it's maybe broadcasting, and we don't often think about, hey, what about officiating? And I love this at a time when fewer people are going into officiating. Like all these officiating agencies, including ones of the state of Oregon and Washington, are having trouble uh, you know, attracting people who want to officiate. So if Smush Parker can go back to the NBA and make a life out of it and a career out of it, cool. Went to college at Southern Idaho and, and Fordham. But I think the cooler thing is, can he make being an official a destination for more people? And maybe it helps other people go, oh, I'd like to do that too. Smush is making it cool. So uh, I also know his feud with Kobe. Do you guys know what that's rooted in? Do you know anything about that? I don't really, unfortunately. Isn't it? It's that year where Kobe dragged a terrible team. Isn't it just related to he thought Smush Parker sucked and yes. uh, sort of resented him and wouldn't share the ball? You know, if you want the ball, go get the rebound. I think Smush Parker was involved in that quote. Yeah, uh, Smush said that he told him at Kobe told him at practice. You know, uh, he tried to talk to him outside of basketball about football, and he said, "You can't talk to me." You need more accolades under your belt before you can talk to me. And then he later told reporters that Smush should not have been in the NBA, but we were too cheap to pay for a point guard. We let him walk on. Got his moment by default. Wasn't efficient. Didn't make good decisions. Said he was the worst. Um, yeah, Smush was like, you know what? I'm going to get back to the NBA. So uh, I love this story for a variety of reasons, but the best one for me is uh, he's making it cool. Now, what athlete in what sport do you think should be forced to come back as an official in his respective uh, sport? Uh, I got one. I'd like to see James Harden have to officiate games. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Dealing with the flopping and the complaining after every possession. I mean, the, I, I, my answer's got to be Rashid, right? He, he, Rashid needs to come in and deal with <laughs> yeah. the screaming. Yep, I, I was like thinking that. Tom Brady, how he complains on all the uh, mm. roughing the passer calls. Would he, yeah. would he call them all for everyone else or just for yeah. him? I like to see that. You know, they should do that. They should do that as part of the Pro Bowl. Put some of the players in referee uniforms and go, you call it, and Tom Brady, get, you get, you're the white hat today <laughs> since you're the uh, senior official. Uh, Punch It Audio is coming up. We've got great sound. You're going to hear it all included in today's Punch It Audio. You will hear from Mad Dog, Chris Mad Dog Russo, talking about Stetson Bennett. He's fired up about that. And Damian Lillard commenting on a team that is struggling. What's wrong with the Blazers? And why did Yusuf Nurkic say, I'm hurting my team? What is he talking about? You'll hear it in part of Punch It Audio coming up. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Punch it audio, uh, we take the best sound, we scour planet Earth, we find the best cuts, the best clips, the best play-by-play. We put it all in one place. We get you caught up on what you need to know. Uh, if you are just tuning in, we had Dave Bartu, the College Football Matrix, in Hour 1 today. Really good podcast. Took a deep dive on what it takes to uh, 
uh, get to the Heisman Trophy ceremony as a finalist and uh, who we should have our eyes on in the Pac-12 conference. He also talked about coaching, evaluation, uh, scheduling, uh, as you try to uh, move from a four-team playoff to a 12-team playoff, does the uh, does the math change there? Uh, grab that podcast with Dave Bartu if you're interested in hearing more. Ahead we go. Let's do it. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Chris Mad Dog Russo talking uh, about Stetson Bennett. Georgia and Stetson Bennett win the national championship on Monday night. Bennett is 25. He's older than Justin Herbert. He's older than Tua. He's older than a handful of quarterbacks in the NFL. Do you hold that against him? Mad Dog does. Punch it. Enough of Stetson Bennett. He's old enough to be my father. He's 25 years of age and he's playing quarterback for Georgia against 19-year-old kids. This is ridiculous. These quarterbacks who play in college football who are old men. He's 25 years of age. When's the cutoff date? 30? 36? But let Aaron Rodgers go back to town. This is the dumbest thing in the world. He's 25 years of age and he played last year and won. This is not a Hollywood script that I heard so much about on Monday night. This is ridiculous. 25. He's older than eight quarterbacks in the NFL. He's older than Herbert. He's older than Lamar. Same age as Lamar Jackson. He's older than Hurts. And he's playing a bunch of 18-year-old kids who he picked to win the game and lost 65 That drove me crazy. 25 years. You have to admit that's ridiculous. Well, while we're on the note, let's not blame the pandemic on Stetson Bennett, who got an extra year of eligibility and would have only been 24 last year. Cam Rising is 23 years old. He'll be 24 in May. Bo Nix will turn 23 next month. You know, you have quarterbacks right now, not just in the Pac-12 conference, but across the country in, in you know, in playing out their eligibility who are taking advantage, I guess, of the rules. Do we blame them for that? Dorian Thompson-Robinson will uh, will turn 24 here shortly. Like, it, look, this is just kind of the way it is in college football. I think ben, Stetson Bennett is an example of, uh, you know, the times, an example of the pandemic, an example of, you know, using a redshirt year and going to community college. I, I just I don't blame him for any of those things. Do I want to see a bunch of 25-year-old experienced quarterbacks in college football probably not probably not because it comes at the expense of the 19 and 20 year olds who are you know a year or two out of college or high school and should be enjoying their college experience as a player but am i gonna am i gonna give a wide berth to a 25 year old stetson bennett you bet because it's the same berth that we're giving to a kid like Jaden grant who you know is 24 and will turn 25 this summer he just you know finished his seventh year of college at oregon state in part because of the pandemic in part because of injury i don't think we should start criticizing players just because a they're a year or two older but you know i don't want to see a bunch of 25 year old quarterbacks but i'm not blaming stetson bennett for navigating the system that he is playing in let's uh let's let's make no mistake uh 
Dominic Foxworth talking about Lamar Jackson. What's going on with Lamar Jackson? Punch it. If I'm Lamar Jackson, he's a better man than me, but I'd be quiet quitting on the Ravens until <laughs> they gave me the money that I deserve. Just walking around and like, I don't know, my knee hurts a little bit. But I do understand why Lamar would not be motivated to play. But in the Ravens' defense, like, I understand why they would not want to pay him what he wants if what he wants is the Deshaun Watson deal. If I was the Ravens' front office, I would say just because the Browns are dumb doesn't mean we have to be. Like, giving a fully guaranteed contract to um, a quarterback who is underachieving is a cautionary tale. Yeah, not just underachieving, not available. But, you know, as we, as we look at Lamar Jackson's status, uh, he missed practice again today. It's the 16th straight practice that he's missed. It's been 38 days since he injured his left knee. Um, they're not ruling him out. John Harbaugh, Ravens coach, said he doesn't have anything to add, no updates. But um, you've got Jackson out, and you have Tyler Huntley, his backup, not throwing a pass in practice today. He's got tendonitis in his right shoulder. Doesn't bode well for the Ravens. We'll talk all about those matchups coming up. Blazers, Magic, Portland missed three game-tying threes and lost the game. Orlando, 109. Portland, 106 last night. Here's how it sounded. It was painful. Punch it. Randall taking it ahead of steam. Coming off the screen. Into the lane. It looks to feed to Dirk. Outside to Grant for the tie. That's an air ball, but it's plucked out of midair by Damian. Lillard turns. 11 seconds remaining. Finds Grant up top. Now they've got to shoot a three. And it's Nurk. It just sets up for the tie. No. Rebound back tap by Grant. Poked by Hart, grabbed by Simon, still a chance to tie. Oh. Off the back iron and out. Ball game over. Magic win it, 109-106. to 106. Chaos uh, last night. Blazers with uh, a bad look to finish the game. They fall two games under 500, 19-21 on the season. Um, really bad loss. Looked confused at the end of the game. A little disorganized. Spacing wasn't right. Steven and Peter, what would you see? Man, <laughs> I saw a lot of the same old, same old down 23 to 8 in the first quarter, going about five minutes without a bucket, which isn't as bad as the seven minutes they'd done each of the last two games before this. I mean, look, they rallied to their credit. You know, Dame got it going, but they're, they're not good enough to do that. Yeah, we talked about this on the Pulse. You know, we said this is a, this is a, you know, a sneaky game right here. The Magic are one of those teams that can score some points if you let them, and, th and they did. Uh, Franz Wagner really went off on the Blazers. There's a stretch in the uh, in the fourth quarter where Wagner um, was going against Drew Eubanks in the pick and roll, worked him, got a switch on Eubanks, worked him again, and they got a, got, a, uh, got on Damian Lillard 101, hit a three over him. Like It's just bad defense, John, just as usual, and the turnovers are killing the Blazers once again. Like 16 turnovers. Uh, I believe the Magic had 14 or 16 points in the first like 14 minutes of the game off of turnovers. Yeah. It was, it was bad in all those senses of like the mental side of basketball. It wasn't even necessarily like the physical side. It was all mental, and it's just one of those losses that you don't really want to see. Denver and Memphis uh, lead the West with 27 wins. The Houston Rockets have only 10. They're worst in the West. The Blazers have 19 wins. They're right in the middle of those two figures. Uh, they are almost as close to the bottom as they are the top. Uh, I can't help but think about Victor Wembanyama and what is going to happen when the draft comes around, guys. But uh, is this a team that should be trying to get better in February, or is it a team that should be a seller and be thinking about the lottery? I, personally, I think we're going to know more here in these next 
five games what the answer to that should be. You know, they've lost four in a row, eight of ten. They don't look good. In theory, they've got some easy games coming up later in the month. But here they have, you know, they have Dallas twice. They have Denver. They have a, uh, an, another tough game coming up. It, 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 this could get ugly. I yeah. mean, I, I was saying the other day on the air, like, if they lose this game to the Magic, it, this might be the beginning of the wheels falling off. So, I would hold off for 10 days before I'm making a judgment, and then I think we'll maybe have some clarity. But what is an easy game for them anymore? Right. Exactly. Like, outside of, you know, Houston, San Antonio, Detroit or Charlotte, like, nothing's easy. Uh, Even those wouldn't be easy. But uh, Damian Lillard had some comments on the meltdown. Punch it. Uh, You know, when you're not making shots as a a team, uh, you know, it can – it can be disruptive, you know what I mean? It's you making shots, it's like everything is flowing, you know, the ball is moving around, but when you start to miss as a team, um, you know, the ball might stick a little bit more. Uh, it just kind of takes away your rhythm, and I think that's where we've been. You know, we've, we've defended pretty solid. Even tonight, it felt like, you know, man, we need to get a stop, and they only had 109, but um, our issue has been scoring the ball, and, you know, we've definitely been in the funk. You know, our rhythm, uh, the turnovers, just, you know, valuing possessions more. Our execution, our pace, you know, is things that we could be doing better to create, you know, more rhythm for ourselves offensively that we're just not doing consistent enough to have a consistent offense. And um, in this league, you know, it's hard to it's hard to be good defensively, and it's also hard to be good offensively. And um, I think right now we're just struggling being consistent. And um, you know, we're in a ditch right now as far as that. And it's um, you know, it's where you got to be mentally tough. You know what I mean? You got to be you got to be able to not like these moments, but you got to be able to deal with them, you know what I'm saying, and just keep pushing forward. And, uh, you know, I think that's a big thing for our team right now is to to not let it take us out. You know, we got to just keep fighting, you know, and uh, understand there's a lot of teams that are in the same space right now. There's a lot of 20 and 21, 21 and 20, you know, we all kind of in a bunch, and we're not taking advantage of that opportunity that we have, but we also not, you know, we're not down and out like, you know, like it, it feels. So we just got to keep fighting. I don't know. You're, they're getting they're getting dangerously close to down and out. And I, Peter, I agree with you. I think you you see what happens in the next ten days, two weeks, and, and then if you aren't sure that you can pull out of this, the worst thing ever for the Blazers would be, be to get stuck in the middle and end up, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten in the in the Western standings. Uh, instead of just saying, hey, look, we're building for the future, it, it it's that kind of year where I think fans would be forgiving if you told them, hey, look, uh, you know, we're going to be a seller here at the deadline, and, you know, you don't out and out say you're tanking, but everybody knows what you're doing. Meanwhile, Yusuf Nurkic, Blazers center, says he's hurting, his, he's hurting the team. Here's Nurk, punch it. I mean, these turnovers, man, it's on me. I, you know, I got to own it this time. It's really bugging, right? I'm, I'm trying to do the best I can to facilitate it, but it's, it's not there. And I'm hurting my team, my teammates, and, and coach, and coaching staff. It's just, you know, it's it's not there, and I got to stop doing it. That means I'm not passing, I'm not passing. You know, I need to pass to open man, simple as that. You know, I think at some point, especially this, you know, half a season in, we got we to gotta be better with that and, and start with me. I can't have a five turnovers per game. I don't even know if it's that number, but it feels like with the with the charge, with with the turnovers, it just and I'm hurting my teammates way too much. Yusuf Nurkic is he part of the the near future, the 
the distance future or just part of this season when you look at the Blazers, guys? Yeah, to me, he's a little bit of a conundrum because he's he's a really good defensive center. He doesn't get highlights, and so it's easy to kind of miss him on that end. But without him, the defense would be atrocious. And he does struggle with turnovers, but he's not really the main culprit when it comes to turnovers on this team. So he's one of those guys like you wish he was better. If you could do better, maybe you want to make a move, but I, I put him squarely in the middle of the starting centers in the NBA, which means he's a top 15, 16 center. I don't know if you can upgrade. I think you got to do it. I don't know if he fits Chauncey's style, but you know, to, to, to get, you got to give and, and is there a team out there that says we're a Yusuf Nurkic away in this modern NBA that I don't know. And it was, it was five turnovers, by the way, he had last night. I agree with Peter hundred percent because it's, he's, he's good, but how good is he? Like, is he going to put a team over the top? I don't necessarily think that. And I think that goes with a lot of the Blazer players, John, like you talked about, they should tank, you know, maybe you may think about tanking and trade some of these guys for value. What, like, what is the value of a lot of their players right now? I think yeah. this team is a very average team. I said this a couple of days ago. Like, this is an average team that, even when healthy, they're going to be in that eight, nine, seven, ten spot. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter what they do. And so it's like, how good are these players? Are they really going to be getting a lot of picks back? A lot of young players. I don't know. So I think they're in a really tough spot right now. It is the problem that, you know, when you have a team that had Damian Lillard and C.J. McCollum, there was less pressure on Yusuf Nurkic to to be a, a offensive threat. Like, he was better as, you know, the guy that nobody was game planning for. Or is that part of the problem here? And and here's another one for you. If you're going to tank, uh, you know, who is it that you remove from this roster? Who are you trading? Is it Jeremy Grant with the expiring contract that goes away? And, you know, what can you take in return that will make you worse on the court? But preserve your flexibility because you kind of like the grant contract because it does give you that flexibility yeah i actually think nurk should be more efficient now because he's realistically the number four option in the lineup with jeremy yeah. grant anthony simons and dame like he should have less pressure on him and so by him turning it over like there's really no excuses for it i and you know on your uh the trade question i think it's either jeremy grant or josh hart i think the blazers can probably re-sign one of them if they want to and then the other one they can't really afford to bring back josh hart and jeremy grant Nurk, Simons, and Dame all on big contracts when you know it's an average team. Like, that is an average team, and you're paying them long-term contracts. I think it's either Ant or it's either Jeremy Hart or Jeremy Grant that you have to look to trade this year. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be hard. I think the long-term play here is you move Hart even though if fans love him, the team loves him, he's a great player. You can get maybe a pick and a bench piece. I mean, a consistent, decent bench piece, not a you know a microwave six-man, but someone that will get you eight points a game and eat some minutes. You kind of let the season play out. You throw Shaden Sharp out there now that Hart is gone. You, you let him develop, and you hope that he pops, and I think the move is the offseason to trade Simons for a better piece. Blazers payroll at 151 million, 14th in the NBA. Uh, Memphis has to be feeling pretty good. They are only their payroll is at 122 million and uh, getting a lot more value there. Uh, coming up, we'll talk about the NFL playoffs and why uh, one guest on the Jim Rome show today suggested that the Raiders' move this offseason is to go after Jimmy Garoppolo. We'll talk about all that plus the NFL Wild Card Weekend next. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
NFL Wild Card Weekend uh, coming up this weekend. Uh, coming up uh, in about seven minutes here on 7:50. The game uh, we have talked Timbers. Peter Sampson, no pulse on Wednesday nights. I know. What do you do? Uh, I uh, peer through the studio window with puppy dog eyes and wish they would just <laughs> let me on the mic five days a week. I like that. You peer through the window. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm itching for the pulse. I can't wait for you, especially after last night's game. Yeah. You know? Uh, and the Blazers kind of looking like they're – like, it would be great if the Blazers were just playing lights out, look like Memphis on the court or Denver, and there was a lot of enthusiasm and – People were hanging their blazer flags out in front of their houses and putting, you know, cardboard signs in their windows. You know, that that would be a lot of enthusiasm and reason to talk about Portland's NBA team. But after that, the second most intriguing time is when they are a dumpster fire. And they are that. They're they are teetering on that right now. And I know in the preseason, I want to put this to rest, and then we, we've got a few minutes to talk NFL, but in the preseason – they were bad, and then there was a lot of talk from some of the apologists out there who said, hey, it's just the preseason whatnot, and they got off to a nice start, and they said, look, see, um, they were fun for about 10 days. How do you explain that, guys? How do you explain how fun they were for, like, the first 10 games of the season? Yeah, that amazing 10-4 and four start in first place. It, it was – I think they were maybe – they heard the noise, and they were trying to prove doubters wrong because they were playing like a team. That's the biggest difference. We can talk turnovers. We can talk, uh, you know, the defense in little fits and starts being bad. But they just looked so connected, moving the ball. You know, Chauncey was sort of pulling the right rabbit out of the hat, you know, when he'd go zone or go small ball. All that got scouted away really quickly, and it's just sort of everyone's sort of devolved back into their baseline. Some of it's bad habits, some of it is old ISO stuff, but they just they lost that connectedness. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's almost as easy as just saying they were winning. Like it's so much more fun to watch winning basketball, and now that they're not winning, it's just not as much fun. But I will say, to Peter's point, also like now the Blazers they were turning it, they were turning it over at the start of the year and winning. Now they're turning it over, and it's really costing them. They're towards the bottom of the league in turnovers per possession. Like this is a team that has to hold on to the basketball, and now they only have one way of winning, and that's outscoring everybody. That's Dame, Jeremy Grant, Ant. They all have to have big games. If they don't do that, they're going to lose. Early in the year, he was playing defense. He was actually, like Peter said, playing as a team. That's the big difference right now. Former Seahawks linebacker K.J. Wright joined the Jim Rome show today. Uh, he had a lot to talk about. He believes uh, that Tom Brady should retire. Listen to this first. K.J. Wright joining us. One last night, you mentioned Tom Brady. And it's time for him to retire. Man, he's not acting like a guy who's going to retire, right? Maybe he will. We'll see what happens this weekend. But why would you argue that now is the time for him to go? Because he doesn't seem like he's going to. And I, I, that's what it's looking like. But I just look at him, and he looks stressed. He looks tired. He's always looking frustrated. And, uh, man, 20-plus years, that's – what more can you do? That's a beautiful career. And the question is, can he get to a Super Bowl? That's that's obviously his standard. And I believe with this, with his um, team that he has now, with his talent that he has now, I do believe that, that it's a wrap, man. And so he can't pull it off this weekend being the Cowboys, but it's other teams that they're way too elite in this NFC. And so job well done, Tom. You know, six, seven Super Bowls. It's time to ride off in the sunset. I just don't know what else Tom Brady can do. Also, uh, you know, in the news today, Tom Brady had 1.1 million shares of FTX. 
and uh, bankruptcy documents were filed this week for FTX, which used to be billion, uh, you know, valued at $32 billion. It's now worthless. Uh, he's lost a whole bunch of money there, and he won't recover those funds. But I don't think it's a monetary thing for Tom Brady. I just don't think he has anything else to do. And it's not like J.J. Watt. Like, J.J. Watt's got a new baby and wants, you know, wanted to play, and his kid got to see him play. Now he's riding off into the sunset and says, I wanted to go out while I still was playing productive football. I actually think Tom Brady, it's it's going to take somebody telling him, hey, there's no place for you, but I still think there's a place for him right now in the league. I agree with you 100%, and we forget, like, how crazy these a lot of these athletes are. Like, Tom Brady has been so successful because that's his personality. Like, you have to stop me from working, and he's not going to stop working. So what else is he going to do? Like, go home and watch TV or, like, you know, take out the garbage? Like, no, he wants to play football. And like you said, he can still play a little bit. So there's going to be a team that wants him, and it's going to have to be dragged off the field, I think, for him to retire. I don't I don't see him doing it willingly. All right, here's another question, though. Um, the Bucks are in the playoffs. They're going to play the Cowboys. Does his performance this weekend play any role in the demand for Tom Brady moving forward? If he plays lights out, you know, if he plays really poorly, does it play a role in that conversation? Yes, it does a little bit, but I still think that there are so many teams that need a quarterback, and you know what you're going to get out of Tom Brady. So I think it does matter a little bit, but not a whole bunch. I actually think if he rallies them, because they're, you know, everyone's saying that the story is that they're fragmented, that, you know, they lost the regular season finale to the Falcons. Um, you know, the way they finished the season wasn't impressive, that they're an easy mark for the Cowboys this weekend. But I actually think if he rallies Tampa and plays really well, it does encourage him. I just don't think there's any way that he plays so badly or they lose so badly that he goes, I have to walk away. Uh, keep an eye on the Raiders and some other teams that we've talked about. Uh, tomorrow and Friday, we're going to go big with the NFL wildcard weekend. We will be all over it with big NFL guests, so I hope you tune in.